This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I want to thank you for joining here today and have an exciting episode for you today. It's the best of or the greatest hits of season one of Transformation Ground Control. So what we've done here is we've curated what we think or what I think are the best episodes or the best interviews that we've conducted thus far in the show. And there's a heavy focus here today on case studies. You know, Some of the best interviews we've had have been ones that take a real life case study, unpack it, talk about the good, the bad, the ugly, and all the stuff in between. And that's what we want to talk about here today is to sort of replay to you what some of those highlights are and what some of the best segments are that you may have missed in the show so far. And if you're a frequent listener and you're listening every week or you're watching every week on YouTube, uh, these are the best interviews that may be good reinforcement and some good lessons that might be worth revisiting uh, from when you first heard them. So we've got four interviews in particular we're going to cover here today. Uh, First of all, we're going to have Rob Taylor who is the IT director at a entertainment retail organization called Sight & Sound, which is a client of ours at Third Stage. Uh, he is on the show, or he was on the show, talking about some lessons from his ERP implementation. They, they recently selected and implemented Microsoft Dynamics 365. Um, in the interview, he also talks quite a bit about how to manage a transformation during this COVID post-pandemic environment with remote work teams and all that good stuff. And especially with the impact to the, the business, their business was significantly affected by, by COVID and by the shutdowns. And he talks about how some of the uh, ways that they navigated that. So Rob will be the first guest on deck. We also have Tarak Patel, who was the uh, VP of IT at a large beverage manufacturer. They, they produce wines and alcohol, and they recently went through a... Uh, SAP transformation. So we'll talk to him about some of the lessons from his transformation and some of the lessons learned there. We also have James Hayward, who's the CFO of a company called Jane's Defense Weekly in the UK. They're one of our uh, clients out of our UK office in London. And he'll talk about not only a transformation and some of the lessons learned in general, but what's unique about his situation is that his transformation was part of a carve out. So rather than a merger and acquisition integration, which a lot of our clients are doing, they're, they're trying to pull together multiple parts, disparate processes and business units, trying to pull that all together into a cohesive operating model. He was sort of doing the opposite. He was carving out from a parent company as part of a spinoff. And there were some unique time pressures that he was under to, to stand up a, a back office ERP system in a pretty short period. And so he's got some really interesting lessons, even if you're not going through an M&A event or any sort of carve out, um, just the fact that he was under such extreme time pressure to get the project done and, and uh, he, he's got some good lessons there. And then finally, uh, later in the show, we'll have Dave Beldick, who is a senior manager at Third Stage Consulting. And he recently helped a client 
that shall remain unnamed, he helped them recover a, a failing project. So it was a failing digital transformation, big ERP implementation for a global company. Project got off track. They hired us to come in and help them clean it up. And he's got some really good uh, perspective that's a little bit different than the first three guests in that these are sort of the things that have already gone on track and what did you do to fix it? So while the first three interviews are more focused on looking back from start to finish, you know, what went well and what didn't, Dave's perspective is more coming into a difficult situation, trying to figure out how to turn it around. So we'll have some good discussion with him and in his interview is actually very, very interesting. And, and I enjoyed that one very much with him. So before we get to the first guests, though, I want to do something that we started last week and we, we had actually done it in one other episode with Parisa before she went on maternity leave. And uh, by the way, she will be back eventually, hopefully here in a few episodes once she's back from maternity leave. So it's, it's me flying solo for the time being. But when Parisa was here, and even last week when I did the first episode without Parisa, one of the things I did that I enjoyed and I think it added a lot to the discussion was I pulled up some engagement or some questions that I've engaged in on social media, LinkedIn in particular. Uh, if you're not connected with me, be sure to connect because I constantly post questions and I try to get other people's feedback on different topics um, on LinkedIn. And one of the recent questions I asked, which got a really good response and had some really interesting uh, responses, uh, was that this question here. And the question is, are most companies unique enough that they should choose technology that is specifically suited to their needs or customized to support those needs rather than relying on a more generic software package? So in other words, I'm trying to get to the bottom of, should you pick a technology that you think is the best fit for you and sort of adapt to that technology or... Do you get as close as you can and then potentially customize or change the technology to fit the business? So it's really, I'm trying to get into the heart of the whole business versus technology. Who's, you know, which, which is driving what? Is the business driving the technology or should the technology be driving the business? And that's a common debate, a common uh, discussion point. I don't know if we'll ever really get a, a clear resolution to it, but we had some good diverse opinions here. And I want to just dive in a little bit into some of those, some of those responses that we had Um throughout the, the discussion here in this thread on LinkedIn. So the first comment actually comes from uh, Ron Lehman, who is a uh, industry peer and expert uh, based out of Asia. And he and I have been connected for quite some time. We've known each other for several years now. And his comment is a good one in that he says the following. He says, most companies think they're unique, but if you boil things down to the basics, they are probably not when it comes to applications such as ERP. The issue, I think, that those making the decisions cannot see the wider picture and will tend to play safe when maybe they should be looking at things in a wider context. The selection process needs to be robust and transparent. So interesting context. I think what he's probably saying, he didn't say these exact words, but I think if you had to pick a side or if he had to pick a side, he'd probably be on the side of let the technology uh, drive the business and, and adapt your business to the technology because chances are you're really not that different when you get down to the the core basics of you know financials and inventory management. Uh, one follow-up question I would have on that, which by the way, I agree with this point, if we're talking about basic stuff like general ledger, accounts payable, uh, basic inventory management, basic order um, order management, basic CRM, stuff like that, but I guess the question is when you start getting into some of the nuances of a business, like uh, you know, if you're a construction company and you have some unique project costing needs, or if you have a 
complex engineer to order manufacturing product that you're providing to your customers what does that look like how do you how do you navigate the fact that not all ERP systems and maybe most ERP systems or enterprise technologies are not going to be able to address those needs uh, that you have and you might need to either customize the technology to fit your needs or you might need a third party bolt on some sort of best of breed uh, process so I think that's where you know my that's the gray area for me is I agree with Ron when it when it comes to the more basic back office functions but when you start talking about the customer facing or the product facing or the business model specific processes within any organization how is that going to be different and how how would you navigate that whole business versus technology driven approach and that is a million dollar question that uh, we constantly are are helping clients answer and you know it obviously depends on your situation some organizations we find that they're they're unique in some ways but 90 percent of what they do is very common across industries and when they look at industry peers it can be very similar but we we want to make sure we differentiate between the things that are actually unique differentiators versus things that are more of a change management symptom or a lack thereof or or, or a resistance to change that might uh, cause an organization to want to customize or change their technology to fit their business rather than the other way around so i think that's the key is to recognize that there may be things that you may need to customize but you want to make sure you're not going too far down that slippery slope of giving people an excuse to not change by saying we'll customize the technology or we'll um, make it fit uh, for the way you've always done things so i appreciate um Ron's feedback there and just uh, I wanted to add a caveat to that or maybe a counterpoint to it to what Ron said there although I agree with what he said in in the caveats that he provided another comment here is from Akil Ashik and he's the CEO and director of a company called driver logistics a third-party logistics company and his comment was the following I think a lot of things can be standard and I believe you need a mix of both generic and custom technology tools I think that's well put. I think most organizations find that to be true. We certainly find that to be true for for most of our clients. And the caveat or the disclaimer, I guess I would throw in there, is that yes, you you probably do need a combination of both, you know, the generic vanilla off-the-shelf technology as well as some custom technology. But again, you don't want to go so far down the path of custom technology because your people are resisting change or your organization's resisting change. And you certainly don't want to do that if there's something off the shelf that would work just as well. Um, You certainly don't want to give up your competitive advantages or the things that make you unique from a competitive and a strategic perspective, but uh, you also don't want to be going so far down the path that you're customizing or recreating the wheel on things you don't need to. So it's a slippery slope. It's a gray area. It's a difficult fine line to walk. It's a difficult tightrope, but those are some of the the challenges that that organizations need need to balance. Another comment here is from Dennis Antony. His comment was, or is, the following. I think choose the technology and then customize to support those needs. Uh, very well put. That's a good general rule of thumb is go in with the goal of finding a single system to do everything you want perfectly, even though you're not going to find it. You're not going to find a technology that can do everything you want perfectly, but get as close as you can. Maybe you get 80% or 85 90% of the way there, and then that way you can really isolate and limit the customization to those areas where you weren't able to get 100% of the way there. And again, it comes down to the fact that you're not going to get 100% of the way there. And it's important to have that realistic expectation that you are probably going to have to either 
customize something or water down your processes if need be or find some part some sort of third-party bolt-on or some combination of all the above uh, but the key is to really get as close as you can and then focus on what to do about those exceptions because those exceptions and that that little sliver of difference between perfection and as close as you can get to perfection that gap right there is going to be the risk and the thing that drives your your timeline and your cost and your overall risk profile and your ability to effectively navigate those challenges is going to determine how successful you ultimately are and if something's going to derail the project chances are it's probably going to have something to do with those gaps between sort of that perfect state scenario versus what technology can actually do for you another uh, comment here is from Demetrio Santana and his comment is, says it's a good thread of discussion here I'm leaning toward every company is unique in needing a specific set of software and processes but it's balanced against what is viable without slowing down progress there isn't really a final destination when it comes to digital transformation so constant adapting is needed and that's where the flexibility of off-the-shelf systems comes in handy so very uh, good point there I think I agree with that I think there's uh, you know again the leaning towards the um, the the idea of finding off the shelf or getting as close to off the shelf as you can and then uh, finding ways to adapt and tweak and fine-tune technology either through bolt-ons or customization or some adjustment to the overall technology landscape can be a great way to, to get you there and then the last comment I'll share that I thought was interesting they're all interesting but these are just some of the highlights uh, this one is from Sunim uh, Ferdis, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name your last name correctly Sunim Ferdis. he said every company must choose the software on the basis of their needs and requirements so there will be no burden of the modules and also customized software will be cost-effective as well that is the beauty of ERP software so I think that's a good point too it, it does give you a platform to have off-the-shelf software sort of your more vanilla capability for back office functions and the more uh, commodity-based business processes but the better ERP systems also give you a platform to do other things so you could either customize or integrate to other third-party systems uh, a good example of that is you look at uh, Oracle Oracle's fusion ERP cloud whatever they're calling it now I think they're they're calling it a combination of all of the above but Oracle's flagship ERP product as well as uh, Microsoft Dynamics 365 those are two products better known ERP products that are not only good at providing vanilla off-the-shelf capability but they also provide you a platform that makes it easier to configure and integrate and also customize if you need to so you have to look at not just what can the software do off the shelf but how easy is it going to be or how difficult is it going to be depending on what software you're looking at to either integrate or customize the software and if you're in a type of industry like say uh, either healthcare or biotech pharmaceutical one of those types of organizations where you know you're going to have regulatory systems that have to remain in place like in uh, pharmaceuticals for example you have the laboratory information management systems or uh, in the cannabis space there's some uh, in the United States there's some uh, federally regulated systems that need to be used to track the sale of, of cannabis based products so you know you're gonna have some sort of third-party systems that you're gonna have to integrate to even if you had an ERP system that could do that same thing so you want to make sure you find a platform that can address all the other needs you have but also be able to integrate with those those third-party systems so those are those are some great points there and I appreciate all the the feedback we've gotten uh, from uh, different people that I'm connected to on 
LinkedIn. And again, if, if we're not connected on LinkedIn, be sure to send me an invite or, or follow me on LinkedIn and be part of the conversation. I'd love to give you a shout out and quote you on a future show. Um, and by the way, uh, before we take a break here and come back to the first segment of our best of greatest hits episode, uh, if you're interested in the topics we're talking about here today, including that thread we just talked about, about whether you should use vanilla off-the-shelf software or whether you should customize or whether it's some combination of all the above or some sort of hybrid, I encourage you to uh, join us at Digital Stratosphere, which is actually happening next week. If you're listening to this live uh, in April 2021, uh, the week of April 20th, so April 20, 21, 22, we're doing a three-day virtual conference called Digital Stratosphere. Uh, it'll It's all about digital transformation, best practices, three days of keynotes and workshops and breakout sessions. I'll be speaking in several of the sessions as well as others on our team and, and clients and others uh, from the industry. So I highly encourage you to check that out. Day one of the conference, the first day of keynotes is actually free uh, of charge to the uh, to the public. So I encourage you to register. There's no charge for that. If you decide to attend all three days, we've uh, extended a, a deep discount in uh, recognition or in celebration of our, our three-year anniversary as a company. It's our, our third year of being in business at, at third stage. Uh, April of 2018 is when I started the company. So we're doing a tying it into our three-year anniversary. So I encourage you to register. I've included a link below, uh, or you can go to just stratosphere2021.com to see the agenda and register for it there. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Rob Taylor, who's the director of IT at Sight and Sound Theaters, a midsize entertainment and retail organization based out of the United States. He's going to talk to us about his digital transformation and lessons learned. I'm going to play you back that clip from early in season one of Transformation Ground Control. You are listening to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. We'll be right back. Are you ready for transformation in 2021? Are you ready for change? Well, we want to help ensure that you're ready at Digital Stratosphere on April 20 through April 22nd. Digital Stratosphere is the only technology agnostic event of its kind, and we're bringing it to you digitally. This unique event is intended for anyone about to go through any sort of transformation, whether it be a digital transformation or a business transformation. This event is going to cover topics from experts ranging from strategy, to planning, to program management, to change management, to technology, everything you need to know to make your transformation successful in 2021 and beyond. And if you're one of the over 1,000 people that attended one of our past Digital Stratosphere events, this one promises to be bigger, better, and even more stratospheric. And the best part is that because this event coincides with Third Stage's three-year anniversary, we're providing the first day of keynote sessions to you with no registration fee. And if you would like to attend all three days of the conference, we've provided deep discounts to celebrate our three-year anniversary. So bring your entire team to Digital Stratosphere and get ready for transformation.
Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. This is the greatest hits or the best of season one of our podcast. We go live every Wednesday on YouTube. We premiere. We premiere on all the podcast platforms like Spotify, Google, Pandora, Apple Podcast, all the usual suspects. Please subscribe to us if you haven't already and, and give us a rating or a review. I'd love to see uh, any any sort of rating or review you have on the podcast platform or you're watching on and or on YouTube. Uh, if you're watching it there. And certainly, please share this with colleagues and friends and others that you think might find value in this. Uh, This is going to be the first segment of what promises to be an epic episode of Transformation Ground Control with four of the best interviews we've had throughout Season 1 so far. And this next one is Rob Taylor, who's a a good friend, who's been a client of ours since actually before Third Stage started. Um, they're they're a client that predates uh, even the formation of the company so it's someone that i know well and it's an organization i know well and we've worked with them for quite some time on their transformation journey here uh, over the last few years and rob has a really interesting background Uh, i love doing this interview with him because he's a very smart knowledgeable guy and he also has a very interesting personal background Um, you know he works for a faith-based organization prior to uh, earlier in his life, I should say, or earlier in his, his career, he was a lead singer of a rock and roll band, which I, I find intriguing since uh, I'm fascinated by rock and roll and rock stars and lead singers and that sort of thing in general. So uh, great conversation. Uh, Rob, thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, great to have uh, some time with you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Good to, good to have you here. So I guess uh, before we get started, I, I wanted to, um, we're going to dive into your digital transformation and enterprise software experience at Sight and Sound. And I want to ask you a quick question here in a second about Sight and Sound and give us an overview. But but before we do that, I, you know, one interesting personal story that you have is you used to be uh, in a rock and roll band, which uh, listeners and people that know me, and I know you know this about me, I, I love rock and roll and music and have a strong music connection, but you, you do as well. So tell us a little bit about your uh, rock and roll history in your past. Yeah, I mean, I sung from high school um and always yeah just i think to be honest in high school they asked that question you know what do you want to be kind of thing and my answer at the time was rock and roll uh you know singers so leading a band and um yeah so went through a variation of different things i grew up in new zealand so uh was around the era of uh, in excess um and different bands like that uh, obviously acdc across the pond from australia um and then ended up moving to the UK and uh, ended up in a band in London. Um, that was probably the most predominant uh, venture I was involved in. So uh, the band was called Maverick and we just played the circuit in London. And yeah, it's great fun. I, I got to say, I mean, you know, music is once it's in you, it's, it's, it's in you. It's yeah. I still, still love those, those dirty guitar sounds even today. So yeah, yeah still, uh, still very much part of life. Yeah. Good. I'm sure it takes you back to the, to the rock and roll days. And in some ways you're still our rock stars, just in a different uh, capacity in a different setting here. Yeah. It's a different look as well. It's like, you know, you see things happen and, and change over time and you look back and you're like, was that me? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, you said, yeah. You said you have a picture of, uh, of your band back. Uh, I, was this? I do. Yes. So this is, uh, this is my, I need to line that up with the camera actually. But So that's, that's me leaning with my back against the wall there. With the cool shades on? Uh, that would have been circa hmm, 94. 94, okay. Yeah, so that, that was when we were in London. So. Wow. Well, that's it. Wow. That's, I can honestly say I don't know any other 
IT director slash CIO types that have been actual rock stars in the past. I mean, people right. use that term loosely nowadays, like, hey, he's a rock star in his industry or whatever, but right. you actually were a rock star and still are. So that, that's great. <laughs> so the comment for sure. <laughs> absolutely. Well, so so Rob, you and I have known each other for for several years now. You're, you're a client of ours. We've done uh, some work together. And I guess to start, before we dive into your transformation at Sight & Sound Theaters, Maybe you could just tell us a little bit in the introduction to you, I, I talked a little bit about Sight and Sound, but maybe in your own words, just describe a little bit more about Sight and Sound and your, your mission of purpose, a little bit about the organization itself. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I came into Sight and Sound back in August of 2015. Um, and Sight and Sound is a yeah, really well-known entity, uh, started literally from uh, a couple who had a real passion to tell stories on a grand scale. And uh, has over, I think we're in our 43rd, if not 44th year. Um, I think 43rd might have been 2020. So <laughs> sort of skipped by. Um, but yeah, telling stories, uh, we, we basically tell Bible stories on an epic scale. So we have two theaters, one in Branson, Missouri, and one here in Lancaster, PA. And they're both uh, a little over 2,000 seats uh, in each theater. And um, because we're in the locations we are, we have no space limitations, much like you would see at, uh, you know, whether the West End or Broadway, um, very restricted in terms of what capacity they have to store large set pieces and that type of thing. So um, this organization, basically Sight and Sound, builds out everything pretty much that we put on stage. We have uh, a hundred foot stage that has a 35 foot trim and uh, we essentially wrap around the theater with 80 feet of side stage on either side. Uh, we have live animals in our shows. Um, uh, the two words that we associate with our shows are basically epic and immersive. Uh, stuff will literally you know, come down out of the ceiling during the course of different scenes. Uh, we've had a, a full-size uh, inflatable whale uh, in our show for the story of Jonah that uh, is brought out over the heads of the audience. Um, and it's uh, in a scene where essentially the entire audience and the theater goes underwater. Um, so yeah, just you know, pushing the edge when it comes to technology. Um, we've been compared somewhat to Disney and those types of spaces. Um, but when it comes to live theater, I, I think in truth, the more we've, I've, I've been you know, involved in different industry com uh, conversations and different industry meetings, uh, it's hard to find an, a, a comparable uh, theater that does what we do on the scale that we do it. So yeah, it's pretty cool to be involved. And when you when you first reached out to us and when we first talked, I remember when I first heard of Sight and Sound, I, in my mind, I think, okay, this is a you know cute little church production type of thing where people's kids are up there acting, but you you mentioned the word uh, Disney-like production, and it and I've seen a few of your shows, and it really is epic. It, and it, the production value is incredible. I mean, it is unlike anything I've ever seen, uh, whether faith-based or not. Even if you just look at you know even some of the non-faith-based stuff uh, that's out there, I've never seen anything like it. So it seems like your secret sauce is the actual owning that production, and you really you know you you create everything yourself. Like you said, I think that's a pretty amazing feat that you yeah. accomplished. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, that's exactly what we're going for. So thanks. <laughs> sure, absolutely. So um, what about, uh, what, what was it that led you when you joined in 2015? What led you to the conclusion or what was that tipping point that led you to say, hey, we need to really rethink our, our systems and 
go through some sort of transformation? What, what triggered that? Um, it really was the state of where I came in. So um, what had happened as an organization was uh, we had several, actually three senior leaders in the IT department um, left in 2014, uh, not, not through any specific reason other than just certain things that came up in their own lives, opportunities. And um, I think to that point, there had been a lot of, uh, the approach had been more around a background of programming and within reason there was this thought that hey we can write these programs so let's just go ahead and build them so we had built out a point of sale system uh, we had a homegrown employee management system um, yeah just a lot of products that when I walked in the door I'm like okay if if we reassess our actual capabilities as a team and and we're an organization of uh, 600 employees and uh, an IT team of 14. And so just trying to, you know, scale things correctly, uh, I just felt like we had far too much technical debt for the products that we were supporting. And realistically, we were just scrambling. We could, I just didn't see an opportunity for us to get ahead. Our development team is obviously a segment of the 14. So, you know, we're talking about four people. And yeah, for them to keep up with things, um, just pretty much impossible. So I think it really spun up very quickly into a conversation about how do we take the mainstream uh, business functional software solutions and get them as off the shelf products that someone else is supporting and you know adding features to and that it's their discipline to manage that type of product. And that way we can take our energy and our expertise and start to move towards the departments that really need a more, um, you know, something that's basically giving us competitive edge um, performance internally. And, you know, make sure that our development efforts are really spent around something that's giving us a, not only competitive advantage from the point of view in terms of um, functionality, but really enhancing the workflow and the capability of our teams. Um, you know, efficiencies are only really gained, I guess, in, in my mind, at least anyway, in terms of you either enhance speed or you enhance the process. Um, and so, yeah, with those two things in mind, it, it just really felt like we, we needed to take what our development team was doing out here and hone it in with a very distinct focus. And to do that, we really acknowledge that, okay, a lot of these other functionalities then need to be handled by a different solution. So we started on that journey of what is that solution? Right. Now, if we break that up into sort of two major phases, one being, you know, that definition of what the solution is and how you're going to move forward. Second phase being, how do we execute and implement? Starting in that first phase, how, how did you get started? What did you do to, you know, define your needs? What did you end up choosing? What path did you end up choosing? choosing to go down? Sure. So we formed a, a small team. We wanted to be agile. So there were just four of us initially. And really, I think at that point, we just all independently started doing research and, and really looking around and just, you know, turning over the rocks to see what we could find. Um, we acknowledged fairly early on that none of us around the table had walked through an ERP implementation. Um, and so we recognized very quickly that we would need, you know, external expertise. And as a part of our early uh, research, we started looking at, you know, who would that be and, and who were the 
players who had the reputation and who had the strength to, you know, come alongside and really help us through it. So uh, we actually ended up getting down to a short list of, of you and your team, uh, essentially at that time, and uh, and Gartner. Um, I think one of the things, I will say this, one of the things that we recognize being a mid-sized company is that as part of our evolution, when you, transver- you know, transition over a period of, let's say, 20, 30 years from a small, you know, fairly within reason garage style business or, you know, I have to say the garage, sorry. Car park. So, yeah, that kind of, you know, transition of just the growth and when you build into that space where you are now in a mid-sized enterprise, um, the transition that happens and really the change, uh, you know, the, the transformation that happens internally as an organization helps you if, if you're aware of it, at least you start to recognize and realize, okay, we need a specific approach to understand um, where we are relative to where we've been. And I think what also happened around that time is as a team, we started to recognize that, you know, we have been dealing with very much uh, a mindset historically of small business that led us to always engage with small business partners within reason and so we recognize like we need to make this leap over that sort of small to medium bridge and actually recognized within reason we were like okay well maybe we'll go a little further and that's why we reached out to Gartner and you know within reason in our research you and your team came up and we recognized pretty quickly that you know you guys were operating at a global level at a broad enterprise level and you know we we acknowledged, okay, maybe that's a little bigger than we are and, and, you know, within reason, maybe more than we need. But I think we married that with, you know, the reality that we didn't want to be approaching it with the wrong mindset. We wanted to make sure that we were looking to the future and looking to building a structure and, and, and bringing in an ERP solution that truly was going to hold us in good stead for, for the, uh, the opportunities coming down the road. And I think that really had, in, in truth, I would say today that served us well. And in, in that we're, unfortunately, where we are, we're currently paused. Uh, but we were very close to, before COVID, very close to implementing uh, Dynamics 365. Right. Now, speaking of Dynamics 365 uh, for Microsoft, and for those listening that don't know what that is, it's a, it's a common enterprise business technology that a lot of organizations use, especially in the, the small, and I'd say even more so in, in the mid-market what was it that led you to decide that the Dynamics 365 was the right solution compared to other options that you had out there? Well, we engaged, we, we essentially went through that process of determining who uh, our partner would be. And we engaged you and your team at that time and uh, really just started the exercise of walking through requirements gathering and, um, you know, getting to the place where you've got a long list of, of possibles and working through, you know, which ones of these uh, slim down and get to a short list and that, that in, entire uh, process that you walked us through. Um, and I think really what we, we came out with is we ended up with three opportunities. Um, I don't know if you need names, but we ended up with Microsoft Dynamics, obviously. Um, there was NetSuite and uh, SAP. Uh, one of their products uh, ended up on that short list. And I think we felt really good about each of those products. Um, and so we started to dig, you know, as you do, look a, a little more under the hood and getting some demos and that type of thing and uh, engaging with the virus uh, that deal with these solutions. 
and um, we essentially worked that process out with you and your team and ended up with a place where you came back with a recommendation. Uh, and I think, you know, it, it was unique in, in some ways in the sense that obviously you, you did recommend a different product, uh, but you made a very strong acknowledgement at the time that, you know, there really were two of those three that were neck and neck. And uh, I think, yeah, we, we're a faith-based organization. So we wanted to take some time and basically sort of, you know, settle back and just make sure we were hearing um, what we felt was the right decision for us. Um, and really take some time to sort of meditate that through and just, you know, let it settle with us and have peace about it. And uh, what happened in the course of that time was was we sort of switched gears and we looked at that second option and that was, which was Dynamics. Um, and because we, we at the time were pretty heavily invested, like we are a fairly strong Microsoft shop um, in the corporate side. Uh, we're Office 365 deployed, we running Windows 10, um, pretty early adoption around the Windows 10 uh, across the organization. And, and so we just really felt like the synergies that we saw um, were likely to lead to pretty big payoffs. Um, and so yeah, that was the final decision. We landed that after a period of time and, uh, and then really just started to look at, okay, how do we get into planning and, and you know, the process of implementation? Right. Right. Well, good. Well, that's a good, a good overview. We're going to, uh, take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask you more implementation and execution related questions. So after we get past the the evaluation, you, you decide on D365, then what next? So we're going to cover that what next here. When we come back from a quick break, we're here with Rob Taylor from Sight and Sound, and you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. All right, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Rob Taylor from Sight and Sound Theaters. And Rob, before the break, we were talking about um, the journey you went through to get to the realization that you needed to make a change with your technologies to really get to that next level of being a, you know, a full, you know, mid-sized company, as well as how you selected the specific technology that you're going to deploy. But one of the interesting things that we observed in working with you is that midstream in the middle of the project, you had a new executive sponsor come in. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about um, her role. And the reason I am asking you in particular is because her, she's a, I would consider her a non-traditional executive sponsor, but in a very highly effective way. Um, she has more of a business background, not as much of an IT and technical background, had never been through a big technical transformation like the ones that, that you were about to go through, yet she came in as the executive sponsor. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about that, you know, what her 
impact was and how it affected the the project from a executive sponsorship and leadership perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I know I referred earlier to the team of four that we you know kind of walked through that early process. Um, the reality is just over a period, uh, I want to say it was probably you know close to three years, we were walking through that process in different stages. Um, we did end up in a place where a couple of the folks on that team ended up leaving the company. So um, yeah, I would actually say the, the person you're referring to is Sarah Murphy, who is our uh, VP of brand development. And um, she came in and uh, within reason was sort of handed this, hey, here's a great opportunity. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, very, you, you know, you, you, you pinned it correctly. Like her background was, was definitely sort of brand and marketing uh, and really, yeah, very, very little technical kind of always just, you know, partnering with technical leads. And uh, so I think I would say now, now that we've, you know, gone through the last couple of years and, and sort of walking towards this process of implementation, um, I would say she, her, her feedback around it has been is very beneficial to her at that time. Um, it felt, I'm sure, at the time, like being thrown, you know, in the big bend. Uh, but yeah, she she very much looks back and just says, like, you know, overseeing the project. You know, it's one of those things when you're overseeing a project and you are that executive sponsor, you are sitting in a very defined specific seat. It's not like you're being asked to be technical. Uh, you're really just, you know, gathering the right folks around you to see this thing play out. Um, and so, yeah, I think it, it was a very good relationship. You know, we formed very quickly a, a great relationship around, you know, it, it, it's a mutual goal. Like everybody around the table has this mutual goal that the company is going to benefit from this product. How do we align our processes to be at an optimal state so that when we move towards this product, we're getting the best possible use out of this product? And, uh, you know, every advantage that, that is possible can be gained. So, um, yeah, overall, I think it's definitely been a great exercise for everybody involved. Um, you know, we were in that strange spot, like I'm sure so many others, where we uh, we had a June 1st uh, stand-up date uh, on the calendar, and we were actually trending under budget and on time to, to stand up the core financials uh, component of of Dynamics 365. Now, I do want to mention too that we had uh, the way that one of the things that attracted us to Dynamics 365 was potentially its ability to stand up in a modular fashion. So you can stand up the different modules without actually having to do a, a complete sort of end to end uh, implementation uh, cycle. And because of that, the first module we actually took on was our point of sale solution. Um, the point of sale solution was a homegrown solution and it just gave us an opportunity to move towards that fairly easily. So the very first module we took on was POS and we took that on, uh, I'm trying to think when it was date wise, I want to say at the end of 18. Uh, and then we had that stood up by, um, yes, it was. And so it was stood up actually, we had originally a goal of March of 19, but we ended up standing that up. There was, I want to say, 30 or 45 days late uh, for different reasons. Uh, it's not that unusual, obviously, in this, in, in this process. Um, but, yeah, we stood that product up in early 19 and, and uh, then moved towards the core financials module as the secondary. Right. Component. Yeah. And I know when when uh, you were looking at, when we were helping you through that evaluation in SAP and NetSuite were the two that you didn't end up choosing in, in with the benefit of hindsight and really looking at how this transformation has evolved so far, 
you look at how D365 has provided a certain amount of flexibility that I think has probably benefited you in terms of the fact that you do everything from, you know, your typical financial transactions and accounting and inventory management, but then you've also got project management and yeah, I know you've, you have a third party, uh, I can't remember if it's homegrown or a uh, third party system, the, the Showtix uh, system. Yep. So, yeah, some, software. yep. so you have a lot of different, I'd consider fairly unique needs, especially if you're not in entertainment and theater, you know, live event industry. So has that been the case where D365 has given you that flexibility to be able to integrate with the, the ticketing system and your POS and all the different pieces that you need to tie together to make the organization cohesive? Yeah, I mean, we are in that, you know, again, like so many others, we are in that strange spot right now where what we thought was going to be a certain window of time with, you know, you've got that typical, you're in your current solutions, they are integrated to whatever degree, and then you've got to try and sort of time out, okay, when we introduce this next new step, how do we, you know, backwards integrate, essentially, if we're keeping an older product over a transition period, so you've got to kind of work out that window of, okay, we've got to make this sort of connection. We're either using an APR or we're doing some kind of unique, uh, yeah, uh, integration uh, programming. Um, and we're kind of stuck in that place. So we're stuck in that place where basically Dynamics Financial is not integrated, uh, not, sorry, implemented. And so we're still in a place where our old ticketing solution, along with our old accounting software, is still functioning the way it always has. We introduced the POS system, so that part of Dynamics is definitely in play. Um, and then, I mean, I haven't mentioned it, and I should have probably, but at the same time as we took on the Dynamics implementation for core financials, we actually looked at our Showtix, which is our ticketing software, as you mentioned. It really functions today as our CRM and ticketing software in one bundle, and it is a homegrown solution. We actually looked and said, we want to revamp that solution as well, and because we were looking at the track of dynamics, it felt like a, you know, it, it's a big job to take on two major projects like this at the same time. But what it felt like was a good synergy so that we could potentially land at the place where both of these new solutions stood up together. And so that we could timeline them in such a way that, you know, either they overlap by a couple of months, but we've, you know, got a very clean path towards how they're going to integrate. Uh, or, you know, we try to stand them up within a week if it, you know, something close. So we, we kind of looked at those different options as well. And so when COVID hit, we literally paused both of those projects. And so we were done uh, very close to wrapping up with the UX, UI design elements of our Showtix and ticketing project and software, uh, working with an external partner to go through that UX, UI um, process and really refine the product as it is. Uh, our current product, uh, just for context, was built back in 2003 uh, and has not had a major iteration since. It's just been, you know, essentially featured, uh, developed ever since. Um, and so, yeah, just, you know, we, I think we actually ended up going back to, in the first month of quarantine, ended up going back to that partner and, and spent a few more hours with them literally just to finish off because we were that close finishing UXUI. So right now we're kind of holding the UX UI development or, or design pieces. All that documentation is gathered, the wireframes are built and everything's sitting there waiting to go. And the work that we've been able to do with the development team since uh, has purely been back office, getting prepped with the way those integrations will happen, the way that they'll integrate with 
you know, we basically have our website traffic and our website transactions are flowing through that software. So, um, yeah, I've been doing some sort of behind the scenes work ever since, but at some point here that will spin back up into very much the front end development of all the work that we've done so far around documentation. So that will coincide and our hope is obviously, you know, at a certain point there too, yes, we'll have Dynamics come in and then basically ShowTix will come in right behind that. So we'll end up with two new solutions um, evolving away from the old ones. And yeah, it's definitely a process to do that. The integration pieces, uh, yeah, are definitely key. And obviously APIs weren't around in 2003. I mean, the concept of them, the way they are seen today. So um, they definitely offer a lot more flexibility today than, you know, you would typically just have to write line code back then to, to make things integrate. So. Right. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And one thing I want to before I ask the next 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 question, I want to circle back and close the loop on uh, one general observation I had around the executive sponsorship, the executive team. Uh, you talked about how Sarah had more of a branding background, not so much a technical background. But one thing I found extremely powerful and effective that most organizations don't have that we work with is the fact that. First of all, you, you you paired someone who really understood the strategic business side of things with someone like yourself who not only understood that, the business side, but also understood the technology side. And combining those two skill sets, if you will, I, I think in a lot of ways seemed to take some pressure off you, you know, to where it wasn't just an IT project or a technical initiative. It was more of a, how are we going to change the business and make the business more effective? Um, the other thing that holds true, I'd say for you, Sarah, and others that we worked with, uh, and I think it's a, a core part of your culture as an organization, is that you're a very humble organization. So you knew you knew what you knew and you knew what you didn't know, or at least you knew when to ask for help or where to ask questions. And I think that was something that served you, has served you very well so far, is that you didn't, you, you, you knew what you were good at and you knew what you weren't good at. And I think a lot of organizations miss that. And that's a really important nuance that, that you guys had. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I would. I would agree, definitely. And actually, I, I would say this too, in, in, in response to the first point you brought up there, um, that was actually advice we got from you in the early stages. Um, and when I came out, I came out and did the your boot camp in Chicago uh, in the early stages of our discovery and research. And I think, uh, you know, took away so many things from that time. Uh, the amount of stuff you pack into a couple of days is, is quite incredible. But uh, yeah, just so much, just really accelerated my understanding of, of what we were walking towards. And one of the things that was a real key point that, you know, I think in truth was what we experienced and held on to uh, pretty strongly was that this is a business initiative. It is not an IT initiative. That was one of those statements that you made uh, very early on and you kind of reiterated it, you know, several times throughout the weekend when I was there in Chicago. And yeah, I really, I, I clung on to that because I, you know, the reality is I think anybody that's lived in the technology sphere understands that, you know, when stuff breaks or stuff doesn't work, uh, the first people they get called are IT. And, you know, rightly so. I mean, it's the end of the day, that, that's what we're here for. But um, to understand the gravity of what a business initiative is versus just an IT initiative uh, really helped us contextualize what, what it is we're doing. And I think that understanding, you know, we've, we've, really continue to meaningfully communicate that. And I think it really has helped with the way that people are uh, supporting, um, you know, the dynamics implementation uh, to this point and you know, continue to do so. 
And uh, yeah, our hope would be that, you know, as a business, we're able to acknowledge here's the gains, here's the benefits, here's, you know, where we're able to actually manage and uh, measure uh, the ROI. You know, we really want to, again, follow through like so many businesses, you talked about that, you know, a lot of business never get to measure the ROI on these projects because of exhaustion. And, uh, you know, I think we're, yeah, we're, we're very mindful of, you know, like you said, again, just this is not our expertise. And we want to make sure that when we're listening to voices like yours who have been in the industry, we're, we're taking note of the key elements that you raise and not just taking, you know, notes in a meeting and then sort of putting them all in a binder somewhere, but taking them and adopting them meaningfully. We are, you know, I, I thank you for the acknowledgement, but we are very appreciative of our internal culture. We really, really love, you know, who we are as an organization. And, and we spend a lot of energy and a lot of time around feeding that culture and really uh, strengthening it. And so we really, uh, we look to truly as a leadership team be bringing benefits that can be felt and truly impact people's roles, um, you know, in the day to day. So right. that communication is super important. Yeah. And as you're saying that, and as, as I think back to the journey you've been through so far and that we've, we've been with you so far, uh, you think back to what if you had gone down one of those other paths, you know, with SAP or NetSuite. Mm -hmm. And when you look back to your culture, I feel like that might have broken the culture a bit. You know, if you suddenly didn't have that flexibility and that, um, you know, ability to preserve that culture uh, and just way of operating and, and all that good stuff. Um, so, so you mentioned ROI and benefits. What what are some of the benefits that you're either seeing so far uh, in your journey, or the ones that you are anticipating? Uh, just at a high level, I'm sure there's a lot. But what are some of the, the low hanging fruit ones that come to mind? Sure, I I think obviously the first piece is is the POS solution that we you know currently have up and running. Uh, our POS solution has has definitely served us really well since we uh, we implemented. Um, we did work with uh, the VAR at the time that we had was, I'm trying to think who they were now. Uh, I don't know that I'm going to recall. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I mean, we did get some really good folks with that team. So yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge, you know, that it was, it was a good experience and in, in certain areas and, you know, challenging in others. And I, I don't know that that, you know, is ever unusual. I think there's, there's always elements where there's, yeah, great moments. And, you know, there's other days where it's like, no. <laughs> Um, but overall, our, our POS solution has been really great. And, you know, again, just going strong today, um, it's implemented in both our locations. We have lobby environments, basically, where we sell both merchandise uh, in person. And then, uh, you know, with COVID, we've been able to scale really well and, um, you know, be able to basically offer more things on our website. And, uh, you know, really, a lot of, I think, where that's, those ROI moments are uh, have been because of COVID, you know, maybe again, like so many others, where it's like certain things that we had in place enabled us to move and pivot quickly to respond. And uh, it's been great to, to really have that flexibility um, with that product. Uh, one of the other things that happened during the course of that journey is we actually then looked at uh, the, just the transactional process around, you know, receiving credit card payment. And uh, we were managing, again, with an IT, there'd, there'd just been a history of us managing every single step of that. So we literally were engaged with a, a payment process. So we were engaged with, uh, you know, a, a specific 
company around the terminals and then we were engaged with all the pieces of putting all those transactional steps together which you know it, it's detailed for anyone who's ever taken it on if you if you do the minutia um and again just sort of stepping back and looking and saying we we don't need to be managing this like this costs us way too much time for the fact that we know there's expertise out there that does this and and bundles it essentially together and, and takes care of it so We've actually since transitioned to using Adyen. Um, so Adyen actually manage our point of sale environment. Um, we have brand new terminals there and you know it's literally an end-to-end -end solution. So it's just fabulous. Like we, we literally don't have to touch a lot of that stuff anymore. Um, so yeah, the, the return there has just been amazing. Like it just literally gives our, our ops team, which is essentially our system administrators and our help desk team just gives them time back and uh, along with that you know we're just a more streamlined process that um, really yeah from the point of view of you know we, we can take now all our terminals are basically uh, touch friendly they're you know chip friendly they're all of those options are available to us today um, and we just didn't have that you know prior to i want to say about 12 months ago um, so yeah that move it was great and then i think the things we're anticipating with the core financials uh, honestly, a bunch of things. Um, we've never had a full-blown uh, purpose-built budgeting process in terms of a software solution. We uh, use essentially a highly developed um, Excel spreadsheet solution today. And, uh, you know, there's, there's obviously limitations with that when you're trying to budget for an organization our size. And so, yeah, a lot of anticipation about getting into a budgeting solution that will really be able to help us hone that process. Um, one of the other things is uh, uh, asset management. Uh, did not, again, have an asset management solution in place, but uh, very quickly able to spin that up um, and, and moving towards that, really anticipating that being helpful as well. We do have a lot of assets we keep track of. Uh, our shows essentially are treated like um, a product and so there's a lot of, you know, the assets really are the costumes that we create, the, the props, the sets, all of those items that go with the show and then basically are accounted for over the course of the show run, which for us will be a year in Pennsylvania and then the show moves to our Branson Theatre and runs for a year there. So over the course of that time, accounting is keeping track of all of that and doing the amortizing and all that type of stuff. So, yeah, those sorts of tools, we really anticipate, um, you know, giving them a lot of time back just from a, you know, raw manual process to be able to, you know, drop into a system and just see the system do a lot of that calculation. So. Right. Good. So just as a, a closing comment, or maybe just to tie this all together, when you think about the journey you've been on so far, you look at the, uh, the benefits you've realized and the ROI you're aiming for, you look at the challenges and the hiccups that you've experienced along the way. So the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, what, when you take all that into account, if you had to summarize just a handful of things that you would recommend to someone who's about to start this sort of journey what what are some of those takeaways that you wish you would have known back back in 2015 2016 when you first started this whole journey right um i think it's it, like you said it's really important that as an organization you are true truly honest with yourselves and yeah i think our acknowledgement of where our strengths were and just acknowledging the gaps that we had not trying to fill them, not sort of blustering our way through, but truly just acknowledging like we need help and we need to ask and find the right people to walk through this with us. 
uh, I think that really served us well. Um, and I think, you know, the one thing I very much appreciate about you and your organization is that our ability to have meaningful conversation with you throughout the journey. Um, I know, I remember, you know, we, we were on calls every few months kind of talking about, hey, like, it feels like we've got our arms around this piece now, you know, so within reason, we don't necessarily maybe need the same level of engagement you know, from your consultants and different parts of the team and just your willingness as much as anything. I really felt like that synergy was great because we were, you know, it, it's almost like that wedge. I don't know if I can demonstrate it visually or not, but it's like that wedge situation where you start out with, we had a large gap of a lack uh, or, and, and well, I don't know how to do this right. I'm, I'm, I don't have a whiteboard. But it's, it's like you came in with a great strength where we had a weakness. Right. And within reason, over time, our weakness was growing and we needed, needed within reason less of your strength because our strength was growing. And so I think that synergy is something I definitely encourage companies to be aware of. Like when you start out and, and even as we were going through the proposal process with you and talking through what would, what would this look like, um, your methodology laid out things so well that I think it helped us sort of just look for those milestones of, hey, we're going to be looking at a chicken, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to be looking at a chicken every quarter. And that chicken is not just, hey, how are we doing, but hey, how are we doing? And do we need to realign? And I think that as much as anything is just, yeah, that's something that we've experienced. And, uh, you know, when it came down all the way through to core financials, like with POS, we used uh, a VAR. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, I uh, don't have anything to drink. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, when we approached uh, core financials, we started to realize that, hey, like a lot of the skill set is actually internal now. And because you'd walked us through so much of the process element, we felt like we had a really good grasp of that as well. So we took on a totally, like we kind of surprised our VAR, honestly. They were, I think, anticipating, you know, walking through the next module with us. But what we actually did was we went to a very hybrid model and we ended up going to uh, Nigel Frank, which, you know, again, is a very well-known name in this industry. And, and essentially we engaged with some independent consultants to do the finance specific piece, uh, a, a solutions architect role. And at one point, at least the procurement module, which is obviously, you know, wrapped in core financials and those independent consultants along with, uh, uh, within reason lessened, you know, re reliance on your consultancy and your team. It, it, it just kind of all merged together in this hybrid thing that really served us well. And like I said, we were coming, you know, three months shy, essentially, when things blew up in March, three months shy of, uh, you know, coming in under budget and, and being on point to have the solution in place. So I think just the willingness to be truthful with yourself and then also be willing to acknowledge that you will grow throughout the process and find that partner that will grow with you and not hold you to rigidity in their own functionality that then potentially could become a cost problem in the yeah. long term. That's a great, that's a great takeaway. And I appreciate the, the, the compliments there with our team. And I think the, you know, the big takeaway that I get from this, if I could summarize or maybe paraphrase is just, I think organizations that, learn how to be self-sufficient sooner yeah. are going to be more successful and they're going to be happier because they're not paying more than they should be. And they're not overly dependent in this unhealthy relationship with their consultants to where they, they need the consultants. And, you know, as much as we all want to feel needed, you, you, we don't want to feel, be, we don't want to be 
we don't want to feel needed years into a process like this. I mean, right. at some point you've got to make, you know, you guys self-sufficient yeah. to where you can own it and that sort of thing. So I think that's a really good takeaway. Yeah. Well, good. Great. Well, thanks for joining us today, Rob. Really appreciate it. Uh, enjoy catching up with you again and hearing some of the stories of where you are today. Some of the battle wounds, the, the good, the bad, the ugly and all that good stuff. I appreciate you being here and uh, I encourage everyone to check out Sight and Sound if you're ever in uh, the Pennsylvania area in the United States or in uh, Branson, Missouri, in the United States. It's a, it's a unbelievable experience. So I uh, really hope uh, you guys can check it out. And thanks again for being here, Rob. No, thanks very much. Appreciate you having me. And uh, yeah, thanks again. You bet. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more guests and more content on transformation ground control. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello and welcome back to the best of Transformation Ground Control Season 1. We just finished up the interview replay of Rob Taylor from Sight and Sound Theaters. He talked about some of the lessons from his transformation, mid-size organization that implemented Microsoft Dynamics 365. And good discussion, great topic. I love talking to Rob. He always has good uh, insights. He's a very knowledgeable and friendly person, a great person to have on the show and a great friend of the company. So I appreciate Rob being here. Now I want to shift gears and provide another client case study that totally is totally different company, different industry, different company size, different type of technology they were implementing, different set of challenges, a lot of similarities. You'll hear some similarities between this discussion and the one we just had. But this interview is with uh, Tarak Patel, who is a VIP or the VIP. He is a VIP, but he's the VP of IT at a beverage manufacturer which makes wines and alcohol. Uh, they're based in the United States, but they have global operations, a uh, pretty well-known brand. And they recently went through a digital transformation journey, which started with an evaluation of potential ERP systems and ended with the actual transformation itself. So we want to jump in and talk about some of the different nuances and the challenges and the lessons learned that Tarak had from this experience. And we had a great interview with them, and we're going to jump right to it. So Tarak, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Appreciate appreciate having you here today. So you've recently been involved in a large transformation of sorts, one of the more complex ones, I would say, uh, in the world. But maybe just to start out, tell us a little bit about your company, uh, what, what you guys do, how many employees you have, that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. So we are a company based in Alcobev space. We make alcohol and beverage products, uh, roughly about 5,000 plus employees. Uh, one of the bigger one out there in the market from uh, from an Alcobev perspective. 
company is very well positioned for growth and was the case when we started the journey. Uh, however, when you think about the process and technology landscape, it's fairly was fairly aged. No longer the case, but when we started the journey, right? Think of it as 15 to 20 year old technology and process landscape uh, that was implemented. You know, when company operated with less than 200 SKUs, right? And uh, in this day and age, we were operating it with uh, you know thousands of SKUs. Uh, had a very strong ambition to double the size of the company or or grow the revenue uh, aggressively, uh, and it was becoming very clear at the time that the only way to do that is to sell something we don't sell or sell somewhere or to someone that we don't sell, right? So the company has a very high market share in the U.S. So it was very, was very evident that the, the growth was going to come through, uh, you know, topics like M&A, global expansions, which in, which in sense requires tremendous amount of flexibility, scale, and agility in your operating model. You know, you need to be able to sell things that you don't sell to locations you don't sell into. You need to buy anything from anywhere. You need to make anything anywhere and sell anything anywhere, right? And that type of growth trajectory was really hindered uh, from speed and cost perspective uh, had we continued to operate on the old technology and process landscape. Sure. Okay. And was there any sort of tipping point that that you reached in your journey there that that you know i'm sure it didn't just happen overnight but was there anything that that triggered you to say hey it's time for us to go revisit our landscape and really build in that agility and update our technology and all the stuff you just mentioned yeah well said right so there were really two tipping points from what i can see right the one was very evident technology was a tipping point we used to operate on jd edwards that was implemented in early 90s still on as 400 landscape and, uh, you know, if I, I use this a lot in my analogy, but that system had 2 million lines of custom codes uh, uh, that was built over time, right? It was very customized and it became uh, evident that at one point in time, if we needed to switch a hardware, we were looking for it on eBay. So it was uh, really difficult to maintain, not just difficult, very high risk to maintain the size of the business on that type of a platform, let alone put another layer of ambition to scale and, and grow that business, right? So that was a big factor. And, and as I said, the second factor was just the fact that, you know, business would go through a transition of co-manufacturing model or a tolling model, and people would operate that on pen and paper. It will take six to nine months for processing systems to catch up, right? So we were really in a place where business was moving at a much faster pace than the whole process and technology landscape can uh, keep up with. Right, right. Yeah, it sounds like a, a good problem to have as an organization, but still still a problem. You know, it's an opportunity. Yeah, absolutely problem. right. I, I say this a lot that uh, for us, we did this at the time of growth, right, which is a good time for companies to really look into this. We didn't do this at the time of hardship. We did this transformation at the time of growth. Uh, and it's kind of like, you know, some of the East Coast folks will use this phrase, right? We changed the roof while sun was shining, right? So right. Uh, it's definitely a good time to do that. Uh, from my perspective, I think it's better time to do these types of transformation uh, when the business is doing well uh, uh, than to do that when, you know, you're in a bit of a hardship from a financial perspective. Right, right. Couldn't agree more. So what about the... Uh 
the transformation itself. Tell us a little bit about the scope of what it is you ended up doing. You talked a little bit about where you're at and where you started from, but what was the uh, kind of lead us down the path of how you, you started down that path of the, of the transformation? Yeah, so we are a very vertically integrated company, right? Uh, and that means, you know, think of it as majority of the product that goes into your finished goods are homegrown. We also have a fairly strong arm of logistics operations. Uh, so when you look at that us as a vertically integrated company, we really attacked all aspect of that vertical integration and the value chain, except for sales and marketing. So we really went after, you know, start from sourcing, finance, planning, you know, good chunk of manufacturing, uh, and customer service, your order taking and logistics. So we really took on, you know, I often say that we replaced the backbone of the company. We didn't touch anything of sales and marketing, uh, be it direct to consumer type of initiatives, be it CRM initiatives. We had things running in parallel, but we didn't bring that into the scope of this transformation. Right, got it. So what, what, tell us a little bit about the, the specific technology you deployed and, and sort of how you got to that or arrived at that decision. Yeah, and uh, I think this would be a great uh, point for those that are in the market thinking about this, right? So when we took on this type of a journey, there were many in the marketplace from a technology perspective that we can really anchor to, right? There's not just one company. And we, we did a couple of things. So one thing we did really well was we brought in an outside perspective completely technology agnostic, uh, not having married to a specific technology and really use them to help us understand what is the market space like? What are some of the pros and cons? What are the best suited vendors from a technology perspective that, that really matches us from an industry complexity as well as our growth com uh, ambition and our, our natural ambition to do this once for the next two, three, two, three decades, right? So it was very important that we partner with someone that has strategic trajectory to where we want to be, but at the same time has a very good fit to our complexity and our basic needs of today. Right? And we went through a very deep exercise. We spent about one year preparing ourselves in selecting technology, selecting implementation partner, and really preparing that internal team be it from the C-level board executive all the way to individual contributor, not just identifying them, but really shaping them and getting them ready for this transformation. Uh, in the end, you know, we selected SAP uh, and with it, we also changed our fundamental strategy uh, in terms of being, you know, uh, a best of suite rather than best of breed. Uh, and we selected SAP as our technology but we had many others that we looked at. We looked at JD Edwards, we looked at Infor, we looked at Microsoft, various. Right. And what was it that led you to SAP? Was, was there anything in particular that really stood out or that was particularly well aligned with what you were trying to accomplish with this transformation and just overall as an organization? Yeah, I would say a few things, right? So first and foremost, it's there. And this goes back uh, about four years, right? So this is a phase where we were in about four years ago. So four years ago, they were very, very much, uh, you know, very heavily invested in taking their core ERP from ECC into S4 space. So we saw a lot of strategic alignment to really transform ERP for the future and continuously transform that ERP for the future in that space. 
so again, we saw SAP as a company that has a high investment from an R&D and from a product perspective for continuous evolution. We also saw them as more centric when it comes to product portfolio. It was a company that had less product than Oracle when it comes to ERP. So we found a bit more focus uh, as a company. Outside of that strategic pillar, I would say scale played a big role. So given that we are very vertically integrated and we have a high growth, growth potential right, and ambitions, the scale played a big role in terms of uh, selecting someone that has proven to be operating in very diverse marketplace, right? I joke around and say SAP is used to build rockets and uh, tissue paper, right? So go find your space in between, right? Uh, so we found that diversity to be very appealing, right? And the last but not least, we've, we've had a tremendous work done leading up to this transformation in uh, identifying, you know, how to connect that vertically integrated company from a process perspective. So we really have a different process when you're blending the product versus when you're making the product uh, versus when you're sourcing some of the raw material. And we found that was it was possible to lift that type of a process work we did into the technology that SAP was bringing to the table. And what about the some of the complexities of being a beverage manufacturer? Was there anything uh, along those lines that you know you're a high volume? Um, beverage manufacturer, a lot of different brands. You mentioned acquisitions you've grown through. So I imagine you had some, maybe some disparity in terms of how the operations worked. Was there anything that, that really stood out or, or that was sort of a, either a sticking point uh, in your evaluation of potential options or led you to uh, SAP? Yeah, uh, for, for sure. Right. So when I think about the agility with acquisition, that was a big component. How quickly can we integrate the acquired company and its processes uh, so we found that agility to be available with components like central finances and, and whatnot in SAP. Though we are a company that really operates with the philosophy of integrating first uh, rather than acquiring and then, you know, lifting and shifting and keeping them on as it is. So we found that to be fairly uh, a strong component from appeal perspective. And then I think the most important, though it's not true today, after two years, we've learned a lot more. But at the time, uh, we were very confident that the, the blend management component of our industry and our business was very well represented. There isn't a, a system out there that does this. And we found that SAP had the, the basic principle to create that type of uh, process manufacturing component using that, their tool sets. Right. Yeah. We actually had a another client a couple of years ago that made a comment they're, they're in a similar situation in that they were growing very aggressively through acquisition. And I remember them saying, which it was the first time I'd heard this or heard a, a client say this was that at the, of the acquisitions they did, some of them were using SAP and some of them weren't, but the ones that were using SAP actually were more flexible and they felt like they had more flexibility to change their operations than the ones that they weren't using SAP. And a lot of times SAP has this, uh, People have a perception of it being extremely rigid and hard to change and that sort of thing. So it's it's interesting to hear that it sounds like that may have been a similar experience for you in that you, you got that agility, you got the flexibility you were looking for uh, with the product. Yeah, and you know, it's it's a double-edged sword, right? Uh, so from a if you look through the lens of a sea level, if you look through the lens of the business as a whole, right, it, it, it is definitely a platform that opens up doors for 
flexibility when it comes to operating model change, when it comes to integration of M&A, right? You can stand up a company very fast from an integration perspective. You can stand up a new operating model fairly quickly. Uh, and we are one of those companies that probably had every, every variation of operating model you can imagine, right? When it comes to tolling or co-manufacturing and things like that. And we found that to be very, uh, very easy to configure and operate in. At the same time, you know, it's not something you can deploy overnight or deploy, uh, uh, you know, over over a week, right? It is a system that has, you know, if I want to add a new plant or if I want to add a new manufacturing location, it's not a click of a button that uh, that drives that type of speed, right? So, like I said, it's a double-edged sword. You definitely get the flexibility of operating model, agility of integration, but the people that have to actually do the work. Uh, they do spend time, right? It takes weeks to configure the system such that it operates right for you. Right. So if you had to summarize uh, in this, I'll ask you sort of a summary question and then we'll take a break and I'll come back and ask you more detail around this. But just at a summary level, how would you, how would you summarize the, the results of your transformation? I mean, how did it, how did it impact your business? Uh, you know, where are you at today? Yeah, I would do it in two ways, right? If I compare us to the industry, I think uh, from a, just the, the execution of transformation and what we accomplished, I would have put us in the top 5%, right? We were, you know, you often hear majority of the ERPs and transformation fail. So I'm happy to say that we were in the top 5% of the success from that perspective. When I look back and look at the business goals that we had in mind, we've definitely hit the macro goals, which was reposition the company to scale, make it easy to scale, make it easy to operate globally, all of that we've hit. We had a big miss, in my opinion, in two areas, right? One is user experience, right? We went in with a very strong ambition, especially with things like Fiori and the innovations that SAP had lined up. Uh, to really elevate that user experience to be more modern mobile type user experience uh, and i think we've missed the mark on that and it has large to largely to do with the way the product is maturing and evolving and then we've missed the mark in certain area of our of our business case right so we expected tremendous amount of efficiency in in areas like sourcing uh, and we've not achieved that yet and again it has to do a lot with the way that the maturity of the tools are and as well as in planning, right? So those two areas were behind. We haven't fully gotten there. Uh, but outside of that, like I said, if you look at a macro picture, achieved the projects in time, well under budget, really good success from Golight perspective, overall companies being able to scale fairly aggressively post Golight as well. Right, good. Well, good. Well, when we come back from a quick break, I'm going to ask you some more questions about how you got there. You know, the, maybe some of the, the good and the bad and the ugly of the, the journey itself and, and how you handled some of those challenges. So we're going to take a quick break. We're here with Tarek Patel, and we're going to continue our discussion here after a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Are you ready for transformation in 2021? Are you ready for change? Well, we want to help ensure that you're ready at Digital Stratosphere on April 20 through April 22nd. Digital Stratosphere is the only technology agnostic event of its kind, and we're bringing it to you digitally. This unique event 
is intended for anyone about to go through any sort of transformation, whether it be a digital transformation or a business transformation. This event is going to cover topics from experts ranging from strategy, to planning, to program management, to change management, to technology, everything you need to know to make your transformation successful in 2021 and beyond. And if you're one of the over 1,000 people that attended one of our past Digital Stratosphere events, this one promises to be bigger, better, and even more stratospheric. And the best part is that because this event coincides with Third Stage's three-year anniversary, we're providing the first day of keynote sessions to you with no registration fee. And if you would like to attend all three days of the conference, we've provided deep discounts to celebrate our three-year anniversary. So bring your entire team to Digital Stratosphere and get ready for transformation. Hey, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. We go live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. UK Time, and 11 p.m. Hong Kong Time. We go live on YouTube, so be sure to subscribe to us there. You can watch us every Wednesday there, or you can subscribe to us on any of the podcast platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, whatever your podcast of choice is. And we're here with Tarek Patel talking about a large SAP ERP business transformation at a food and beverage, or actually a beverage manufacturer. And uh, we were, right before the break, Tarak, we were talking about some of the uh, the two shortcomings you had in this project. It, on one hand, you said it was top 5%, went really well overall, but two things you could have done better were the user experience and, and the business case, or the benefits realization within that business case. But if we back up even more and look at the actual journey itself, not so much the end state, but just how you got there, what were some of the the biggest challenges you face? What were some of the road, uh, road roadblocks or pitfalls along the way? Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, as any transformation would face this, uh, uh, you know, for us, the, the number one challenge at the start was to unify and unite the company, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's utmost important. And one of my early coaches used to say, aligning your sponsors and, and setting the right ex expectations, not just at the top, but across the company is very important. And uh, for us, that, that uniting that voice in the company was perhaps the number one challenge we faced in the beginning. Uh, after that, just like any transformation, you know, we faced challenges for uh, from various aspects, right? So one is, you know, when you get into these types of transformation, you're working with multiple vendors, be it your software providers, be it your implementation implementation partner. The next challenge was really to make sure that you keep them in sync. Uh, and you create a, a culture of one team where all of them are working for your benefit and, and not pointing out individuals' uh, you know, risks or flaws. So that was a second challenge I would say we faced. And a third, which I kind of talked about in my results, was just the, the gap, right? Throughout the journey, you're going to learn things that you didn't know and you're going to find things that you didn't expect, right? So we definitely found plenty of those gaps where our expectations were not meeting. 
and adjusting to those gaps and continuously keeping your you know company your executives uh, and your teams aligned was probably my third biggest challenge that we faced so let's go to that alignment concept you know with your executives your stakeholders but also your your software vendor and the system integrator how did you how did you achieve that alignment what did you do to overcome that yeah so i'll speak in both aspects right so when you think about unifying the company uh, for me, it's very important that you have a strong why, right? Uh, people need to know why you're doing it. And there has to be a very strong, uh, you know, alignment on that why, right? So we spent quite a lot of time in shaping why are we doing this, in making sure that every executive that was lined up to this type of transformation understood why we're doing it. And we were getting, you know, what they expected out of that transformation vision. Right. So we spent tremendous amount of time aligning that. And I was very fortunate uh, uh, to have a CFO at the time who was a very strong sponsor. And I would uh, I would really advise people that are out there to look for such executive sponsorship. Our CFO really took this upon himself uh, in so many ways. Right. And really didn't just you know, sponsor the project from distance, but really sponsor the project by being in the weeds and being with us uh, as we were shaping that. So that played a big role. The company also made some very interesting changes where it unified the leadership under one responsible uh, for this type of transformation, right? So that was also important uh, that's, that the executives were reporting under one sponsor, right? So that was very important. The owners of the company took a very active interest in making sure that we're aligned, we're aligned on why. So to me, that played a big role. And as I mentioned in the beginning, having a, a software and SI agnostic party that helped us bring, you know, that brought us together at a next level uh, was very important. So for me, that's, uh, that goes a long way. I think that sets you up for 70, 80% of your success. Right. Uh, the second aspect, we were really strategic. You know, you'd be surprised how much leverage you have over your SI and over your software company when you're buying and when you're in your negotiation phase. So we were very strategic to request very high executives from each of those companies to be part of our steering committee, right? So we went as far as asking for a board level members to be in our steering committee and we were successful. And that opens up doors for driving that strong partnership between various parties that are engaged and involved. Uh, and the last piece, which is very important for me, was, you know, we never treated this transformation as something that a partner is going to execute on our behalf. We had a very clear mantra that we are accountable for it. And we lived it in a day-to-day -day basis, right? So anytime we suspected a risk or we suspected an issue, we would really take an active approach to work that through multiple parties that were involved, bring them to the table all at once and really treat it as this is a company problem and we all need you to, you know, roll up your sleeves and solve it for us. Right. You know, you're, you're hitting on a, a couple really interesting points that uh, I think a lot of companies miss, a lot of organizations miss during these transformations. I think a lot of times, companies make two faulty assumptions. One is that my system integrator is going to lead this for me and I'm going to outsource this project to them. And the other is that, you know, this is a, a project management sort of uh, a project team sort of project that needs to be executed at the project team level, 
without thinking about what what do we need from our executive team up top? You know, what what sort of top down sort of direction and and uh, alignment and uni- unification, as you call it. Um, what what is it we need from them? And I think a lot of organizations are almost afraid to do that because being a top down command and control type of company isn't you know isn't what people necessarily want day to day. But you sort of need that, even though the the trendy thing is to be more of a flat organization and more you know collaborative, and you can still maintain that, but but still having that clear direction at the executive level uh, is very important. So I think those are both really good points. Yeah, and I would say, you know, you, you hit a key point. It's involvement and ownership at that level is equally important as well, right? We, are, we were really fortunate where we have a culture of inclusivity. I mean, I've had, you know, C-level executives sit in a process, uh, uh, I wouldn't say process design, but process uh you know, process uh, overview session, right? And they would ask for it. They would ask to say, hey, show us how the new order to cash process is going to be different. And and it's important for executives to have that level of passion, engagement in these types of program as well. And I often joke around and say, you have to bring the gods down to the earth if you want this to be successful. Uh, Whatever works for you, whether it's monthly, weekly, but they have to stay engaged and at least take full interest, uh, both from, uh, you know, both from how the future is shaping as well as how people and morale of the people is doing. Right. That's, that's great. That's great advice. sounds like you've had some good, some good mentors and, and help along the way too. Absolutely. It was a great team. Yeah. So, um, what about, uh, organizational change management? When you think about the changes and the impact that this transformation had on the business what what sort of challenges did you face along those lines and how did you how did you address them yeah uh, again i would say uh you know it's an off it's often an area that's underestimated or under overlooked right uh i would again say a lot to do with just the the fact that i mentioned you know we had sponsorship that really recognized the the challenges that come with ERP and the business transformation. And from the very beginning, we were, you know, we were very clear that this needs to play a good and important role. And to many people's surprise, you know, my counterpart, typically the ERPs are set up where you will have a, you know, a program director from IT and a program director from business, and then you'll create a two in the box concept. We from day one structured this where my counterpart was from HR. Uh, the individual had a lot of experience in operational excellence and also manufacturing space prior, but was very keen on creating the right culture for the program, driving the organizational change management for the program. So we, we you know, we put m- money where our mouth is and we created that two-in-the-box leadership with someone that came from HR and had a tremendous amount of manufacturing transformation experience, but had a huge focus on making sure that we create the right team, we create the right culture, and we keep this from communication, training perspective, and forefront of the organization. So that played a big role. We also were very strategic in hiring an OCM leader. You know, we were lucky to hire someone that had 13 ERP under their, 12 ERP under their belt. Uh, so that played a big role, right? And we were very clear that change management is, 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 in my opinion, equally important as any other tenant of that program. Uh, so that played a big role. 
after that, right, we, we simply followed what, uh, you know, what many methodologies exist out there in the marketplace, but we followed a very strong change management methodology. You know, we were, uh, like you mentioned, we were in front of every executive you can imagine in the company, whether you were part of the program or not, at least once a month, once a quarter, keeping them appraised on what's happening, what's not happening. We operated with a very strong culture of transparency. Uh, you know, we used to say early good, early bad news is a good news, uh, and we would, you know, post all of our progress, good, bad, or ugly, on on all of our walls. Made it very transparent, both inside that epicenter where the program was operating, and outside in terms of how things were going. Right. So those were, I think, the key tenants for what made our OCM successful in the program. Right. That's great. And, and uh, you're right. A lot of organizations do overlook that, but it sounds like you had a, a clear strategy, you know, tool set methodology and support to, to address that. Yeah. And this is another good area of uh, ownership, right? We encountered uh, fairly strong challenges early on. Our SI methodology for change management, their approach, and, and that the way they were integrating their change management with the culture of our company was not very well aligned. Right. Mm -hmm. And very early on in the program, we made an active decision to say we will own it. And the partner that I had was so strong. Right. We were able to say, look, we will own that change management with the staffing that we have, the philosophy that we have in the company and the leadership we have. And we took that in house and we ran that ourselves. So, again, very important to have a good strategy, good people that can really back up that strategy from an execution perspective a sound methodology uh, and a clear focus uh, on every day, every hour of your program. Right. Now, what about the overall uh, implementation time and budget? How did that compare to the actual implementation results as far as on time? You know, were you on time on budget or did you have any sort of discrepancy or adjustments you had to make along the way? Yeah, on a, on a big picture, you know, we hit our targets. We used to, and this is also an important factor in your success, I would advise every company out there to re-evaluate your incentive structure and make it specific for this program, right? So we did that. You know, we went through a complete change on how the people, every single person in the program from top to bottom are incentivized. Uh, and, you know, in summary, we, we delivered, you know, above target, both from time and budget perspective. Uh, from a program point of view, yes, we were on time and on budget. But as executives, we knew that these programs don't go on time and on budget. So we had at least given some latitude for our people to hit right. their target. Right. So we were on time. We were on budget. We executed this top to bottom in 18 months. Uh, you know, I can't share the number, but sure, it was very expensive program, just like any other company would encounter. Uh, but overall, in time and budget, our business case, it took us about a year to realize and like I mentioned, in all areas except for, I would say, sourcing, we're realizing our business case. Right. So it sounds like you, you, you did, despite the pitfalls and the challenges and things you had to work through, just like any transformation, it sounds like you, you guys ended up in a, in a good spot. Um, you had said that uh, you, you feel like this project was in the top 5% of, of projects out there. If, if I'm a CIO or a project manager or an executive or business owner that's about to go through a similar transformation, what, what sort of parting words of advice would you give to them to, to help them achieve that same goal of being not being a failure, not being an underwhelming success, but more of a 
you know, one of the top performing transformations? What, what's the advice you would give? Yeah, I would summarize some of the points that we discussed early, right? Spend your time preparing yourself, planning yourself well, it pays off, right? Jumping in it too fast is not the right way to do it. So spend your time planning, and it's really about aligning your executives, making sure you go in with a realistic business case, right? Benchmarking yourself with an outside world is not my favorite, but know what's possible. Of course, benchmark to know what's, what, is, uh, what is out there, but know your own success, right? So define your own success, align your executive, uh, prepare, prepare, prepare in terms of, you know, making sure you have done your due diligence from the products that you're going to select uh, from an expectations that you're aligning. And then most important, right, invest in your people. Make sure you line up the best talent, the right talent. Uh, and then last thing I would say is be ready for surprises, right? There's not a day in this transformation that, that will not give you a new surprise. And be ready for that level of flexibility, agility, create a culture for your team uh, that can, you know, go through that type of uh, challenges and surprises, right? Founded on teamwork, commitment, transparency. It's very important to create that type of culture. The last thing I would leave for the people that are looking into doing this is if you are in that leadership role of that transformation, whether you are a sponsor, whether you are a director executing it, create proximity to your team and to this project, right? Uh, uh, it's important to know people that are working on it, work that people are doing on a day-to-day -day basis. I think that goes a long way uh, to stay close to that project uh, at all levels. That's well put, and it's, it's really sound advice, especially because so much of what you're suggesting and recommending is focused on people, you know, people, culture. You haven't talked a lot about the technology itself, which I think is, is interesting and fascinating, and I, and I agree with, by the way, you're, you're focused on the right things, and that's probably why you were one of the, the rare breeds of, of successful transformations out there. Yeah, Eric, I, I, you know, I've heard this so many times, and even though we've had some pitfalls, I, it's proven again that technology is the least of your complexity in this transformation, right? Uh, you you have so many other facets that uh, that are much more complex than technology. In our case, uh, you 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 kind of said it well, right? Uh, or in our case, if I look back, my biggest challenges were technology because we did the other things so well, right? Uh, and in, when I look at that challenge from a technology perspective, it was really around setting our expectations right right we, we you know we had an ariba product from sap and we internally marketed that as an amazon like experience it is not amazon like experience uh, it is different so it's important to you know calibrate what you're going to get and align your expectations and then we were also very early adapter of some of the emerging technology like ibp of sap we expected a lot more out of it than what we what we should have right so that's also important to make sure that you assess that well. After that, the implementation to me is 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 not the real challenge from a technology perspective. Right, that's well well put. That's a that's a good good place to leave it. Well, I appreciate you you being here, Tarak. These are very uh, interesting observations, and really appreciate having the opportunity to learn from your your experience here. Hey, I love giving back. So happy to happy to have this chance, and thanks for giving me the opportunity. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control and more guests. Uh, we'll be right back. Here we go again. Well, 
If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. This is the best of the greatest hits episode for season one. Some of the best interviews that we've had. Some of the highlights of the show so far. We want to put it together for you all in one episode so you can get the the highlights and see what you missed if you missed any episodes. And if you've been watching all along, it'll hopefully reinforce some of the highlights of, uh, of things you've learned throughout the show. And the next guest we want to ha- have on the show is a replay of an interview we had with James Hayward, who is the CFO of a company called Jane's Defense Weekly, which is a UK-based defense publication and research organization. And the interesting thing about this is not only are we now moving across the globe and we're looking outside the United States and we're kind of shifting gears looking at our uh, UK office, our our office at Third Stage Europe in in the UK, and focusing on one of the clients based out of uh, that region, but in addition to that, it's also a CFO's perspective, which is always unique. And the first two guests we had here on this best of episode were CIO or IT director types. James is a CFO, so he's going to have a different perspective and a slightly different take on some of the lessons learned and the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the other thing that makes this one unique is that he had some pretty unique time and cost pressures that he was under to get this project done. And so we had to go in with a very uh, predefined time box that we had to get this done because he was part of a carve out. So rather than being an integration as part of an acquisition and trying to pull together different parts of the organization, he was doing the opposite. He was trying to spin off, or he wasn't personally doing this, but the entire organization was spinning off from a parent company to create a standalone organization, which entailed creating a standalone back office instead of enterprise technologies to support it. And he had a very limited window to do that. And so it's really fascinating to hear from him how he navigated that and the things that he spent a lot of time on and the the things he didn't spend a lot of time on, as well as the sequence of activities. And I think this uh, has some really tremendous lessons learned, even if your transformation has nothing to do with a carve-out or nothing to do with an M&A integration. And even if you're not a CFO, there's a lot of really good lessons from this discussion because many of you are probably under some sort of time pressure and you've got to get your project done very quickly. And so it may be tempting to focus on the wrong things first. And he does a good job of unpacking what he focused on, which is in many ways counterintuitive, but in my opinion, highly effective. And it's typically what we recommend our clients to do. And he is a client. And I'm not saying that's the only reason he did is because we told him to, but he's a smart enough guy that he probably would have done that anyway. So I want to uh, shift gears then and bring James back onto the show. James, thanks for being here today. Thank you. Um, look forward to chatting. Um, yeah, let's go. Absolutely. So we're here talking about Jane's Defense Group, uh, which is a, a client to, that we've worked with you on. 
there in the UK. Um, what can you tell us about uh, Jane's Defense Group? What do they do? What's the scope of you know how big they are? Maybe just give us a little bit of overview of the company. Okay, so Jane's is a fascinating business. It started in 1898 when there was a General Jane who identified um, and used to draw pictures of naval ships. And the idea was that uh, he would use these pictures to actually um, send out to military commanders so they could identify the profiles of ships on the horizon and identify them as enemy ships. And it, since then it has grown into what is called open source intelligence provider. Um, and it provides information which is by its definition publicly available uh, mainly by the internet nowadays, on everything to do with intelligence, to do with the security aerospace defense industry around the world. Its major customers are the US government, is probably its biggest customer, and all the agencies that sit within it, the Five Eyes, NATO, but there's also, you know, the, 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 there's Japanese, there's, I think we sold to, oh, I don't know, 90, 95 countries around the world. And it's a fascinating insight into what you can glean from um, open source as to how you can provide that intelligence to the security and aerospace industry. So it's a, it's a really, really high regarded business. And it was actually a privilege to be involved with them. That's really interesting. It's not not the everyday company that you come across. Uh... No, it's not. It's the type of thing which I mean, actually, you often see in the newspapers, you know, accreditation to Jane's or whatever, as they, you know, they will identify a tank which has been used in Syria or, or, or a tank that's been used on the Ukraine border. And actually, it may well be the, um, you know, a, a Jane's intelligence or sorry, somebody who works for Jane's. They're not intelligence officers. It's not classified at all, but they're experts in their field who can recognize the markings of a tank and say, well, that's a certain brigade that belongs there. And therefore, that is part of the Russian infantry of you know whichever um and from there they can glean all sorts of information it, it's all it, i said it's it's all open source there's nothing classified but it's extraordinary i actually sat the open open source intelligence course also the introductory course what you can glean from the internet and um and, and from knowledge um so they yeah they've got a hell of a reputation and they so they were owned by ihs market which is a huge um conglomerate uh, with 15,000 employees. It's just announced a merger. I can't quite remember who with. Uh, but, you know, very, very well regarded company. But they were, so there's 15,000 employees in IHS market. Jane's has got about 350 employees. And uh, they were considered um, to be, you know, not core to the IHS business. So they were put up for sale just over a year ago, a year and a half ago. Uh, highly profitable business, uh, a very, very good one, uh, but just not core to IHS's strategic vision. So they put up for sale and they were bought by a private equity outfit uh, just just this time last year, just over a year ago. Okay. So Jane's was, is a client of, of Third Stage and you were involved with Jane's uh, prior to our involvement and, and you were brought in as interim CFO. Why, why were you brought in and what were some of the major challenges you faced when you first came on board at Jane's? So I I was brought in because because Jane's was part of a big corporate. Um, when it was sold, they essentially transferred the business of Jane's, if I can call it that, the assets, everything to do with the business of Jane's was transferred. It was, sorry, it was a division 
within the transport division of IHS. So they transferred the assets of Jane's or the business of Jane's into a new legal entity. But that was effectively it. It was the front end of Jane's. It was everything to do with the commercial side of Jane's. At the corporate part of IHS market, there was not one single back office function that was transferred. There was no finance, there was no HR, there was no legal, there was no admin, there was no IT, there was no corporate structure at all other than the front end. So it was vanilla. They got the business and everything that the business delivered, but actually nothing to support it in terms of its whole infrastructure. So it, literally there was not, there was one finance person came across who was an FP&A um, uh, lady, girl, uh, who, who was brilliant, absolutely central. That was the only back office person who came across, nobody else at all. So we literally started with a blank slate. So I was interim CFO, well between the two of us, I, we were the whole finance department supported by um, sort of like runoff agreements with IHS market to support us in the transition transformation period. And that's exactly what happened. So uh, I was brought in because uh, I've, I've worked in many, many companies and I've, uh, as an interim, as, as a supporter uh, to help companies. So I've seen what hopefully good structures look like. And I think that's part of what it was about was it's not me knowing the answers. It's probably me about more about me knowing the questions to ask. And so I was brought in by the private equity house to help that transformation from being part of a large corporate to part of a standalone within a private equity environment. Um, so hopefully that uh, that answers the question. And and, and and actually just just to lay the scene there. So the the, the corporate IHS, very well run, really good business, had the absolute classic ERP setup. It had SAP, it had Workday, it had Salesforce, and it had Concur. Um, and I'm doing a similar job at the moment, and it's exactly the same setup. <laughs> Completely different organisation, but it, it's very similar. So it's a it's a pretty well tested route, you know, SAP, Workday, Concur, Salesforce. Um, so none of this came across should I say, as part of the transaction at all. So we started with blank slate, which is, you know, which gives you an opportunity. Right. So, so it was, that's really interesting. And that's one of the interesting things about carve outs is I think a lot of times when people think about a transformation, they think about, I've got my back office in place. It may be a mess and I need to improve it, but I at least have something there. Whereas what you're saying is you, you guys were sort of forced to stand up that back office and some of those internal processes and the, the things that were part of that, the larger entity. Yeah, and actually both have their advantages. You know, one of them is you start with a blank slate, which is what we had in James. Um, so, so we literally start with a blank slate, but you've got to build it up and you've got actually nobody there to build it up with. So you literally have to build, it's not just buying in that one, it's not just getting the ERP system, commissioning it. It's actually educating, training people. Whereas, and I have done this, it's going to fix it in businesses where you actually have a starting point, but it's just not working well. So both of them have their challenges and their advantages. Uh, I mean, interestingly enough, one of the things that came out of the Jane's transformation was because we had nobody there 
one of the things we actually got a little bit and, and wrong is not quite the right word because you, you're never going to get everything right and we'll, we'll touch upon this later in the in the talk i'm sure um well one of the things which i subsequently found because i've i've handed over to a permanent replacement now is that the once you've gone live because none of the none well there were no there were no staff there and no back office staff there at all they didn't have any of the experience or the trait well they did have some training but the real training the on the ground training uh, and you need more of that in a situation where you're doing a carve out with absolutely zero back you know zero backup at all um, whereas a business which is transforming you've got a back office there you know actually you will have staff there who know how the business works who understand the mechanics and the the flow of the business whereas in this situation we started with a blank slate so a little bit more training and and you can't be real live you know transactional training for these types of situations it, it's just a it's just one of the challenges right yeah so so how long of a time frame are we talking about here you know, from the time you were brought in until you actually had a, a semi-working back office function what, what kind of duration were we talking so um we came in uh, i came in about a month before the transaction finally closed and then we had a target to try and migrate across about an 11 month period um salesforce workday concur and sap so we did salesforce workday earlier concur and sap all became part of netsuite which is what we went across to um and so the whole thing has taken i think they've just about got off their what's called tsa's transactional service agreement so the whole thing took about a year and that, that you know that was tight um, and took a huge amount of investment in um approach a, a, a program management office um and a lot of planning so we did the whole thing in a year um and you know and i've i've, I've heard anecdotally of people who you know it's it's been a lot longer i don't think i've heard you know many examples where it's ever been shorter than that you know you might be able to shorten it by a month or two months but you know these things take a lot of time um and a lot of investment in you know in in resource so yeah so it's yeah one just over one year in i now know that they are working and functioning properly um on their new erp system um i think all the all the erp systems are now functioning properly i mean it's never a perfect world and we'll come on to that but it's it, it's worked right so what are some of the in that year timeline which is which is fairly aggressive with you know if you think about all the things that must have gone into that it's not just technology obviously you're also talking about standing up the business processes and the team and all that stuff but what are what are some of the biggest challenges you faced when when going through this this transformation well for a start we had no staff at all <laughs> i mean That's literally <laughs> yeah, from, you know you, you've got the, the what i call the front the front of house stuff the you know the sales guys you know the, the, the guys providing the content in the case of james because it's intelligence you know the ceo the senior leadership team and they are great but they've been part of a corporate which has got you know many many thousands of people and actually what is very apparent is there's a huge amount of implicit support that goes into those structures which people don't really realize they've got until it actually disappears um it's it's something which 
we wouldn't even you know explicitly think about until somebody takes it away so part of it was about a, a culture change which happened over a period of time on making people realize that you know they were no longer supported by the mothership uh, as i would call it um there, there's a whole decision making process you're no longer going up through layers and layers and layers of management to get decisions guess what private equity world you can make decisions within days within you know very very quickly if something's got to be done it's got to be done uh, recruitment was clearly a big challenge and we spent a lot of time and a lot of investment into making sure we, we could recruit we recruited about 90 people of which probably more than half were in what i would call the back office functions so that recruitment process is started process started you know really immediately the deal was signed if not actually before the deal was finally completed because you, you've got to get these people on board and it just takes time you, know, you want top quality people and you're going to have to take three months to recruit and three months for them to and you know, to, to work out their contracts and before you know it you're six to eight to nine months into your year so that's a, a huge part of it and we set up we, we actually took on board a lot of interims we set up program management offices uh, which is absolutely key, and uh, you know, I think I'll touch upon that um, later on, but having specialists who know what they're doing just gives you that peace of mind that actually your decisions are hopefully being, you know, formed in the context of people who understand the consequences and also the, the challenges that you're, you're facing. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting. So it's, it's uh, you know, on the surface, it sounds like you had to stand up some technology and some systems, but when you really dig underneath that, there's a lot more to it, obviously, with the, the processes and the hiring and the the people, the culture, all that good stuff. It's only people who make decisions. It's only people who do things, you know. All these systems, I mean, they're all good, whether it's your NetSuite, your Dynamics, your SAP, your Oracle, whatever, you know, they're all good systems. I mean, you know, they're all mainstream and they, you know, some are more appropriate for different businesses. So the only thing that's probably going to let you down is actually people. Right. Um, any well people said. who drive machines. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. If you don't have good people, but great technology, that's not going to do you a whole lot of, whole lot of good. It's a very bad mix. Yeah. Well, good. I'm, I'm going to build on that topic here in just a second. We're going to take a quick break here with Transformation Ground Control. We're here with James Hayward from James Defense Group. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Okay, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with James Hayward of James Defense Group. And before the break, James, we were talking about uh, some of the, the challenges that, that you had with the transformation and just all the, 
the, the magnitude of scope of all the things you had to address in standing up uh, some of these back office functions and systems and team members. But you said something that was really interesting in, in the midst of all that. You, were, you talked about culture and you mentioned that, that there's a cultural change or a cultural shift that you had to enable as part of this transformation. Maybe help us understand that. What, what was that cultural shift? How did you go about it? Um, what, what was that all about? It's 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 simply the fact that you are you, you're taking a, an organization and particularly a management team that has been part of a very I mean it's not a rigid hierarchy I, it was a great company for, in, in, on reflection but you know, you're dealing with a company that had fifteen thousand people in and to run a fifteen thousand person business and I'm actually dealing one with with one now which has got a sixty thousand you know which was sixty thousand people. To, to run an organization like that, you actually have to have quite a quite a sophisticated but quite a rigid structure for the decision-making process to work up and down. And actually, the materiality of information is completely different. So a business that's turning over you know, into the billions has got a completely different materiality level compared to one which is being carved out, sold to private equity, it, it, it turns over, you know, into the tens of millions or hundreds of millions or whatever it is. So what was important to the group under, you know, corporate ownership, or sorry, what was not important to the group in terms of, you know, you know, you know variances to performance is really important to a PE house. Yeah? So, uh, and actually the ability to make a decision, you're not spending, oh God, this recruitment, profile has been out there for six months we haven't got anybody if you want to get out and get somebody recruit somebody you, you know you, you you go through the right channels and you get a decision within a day so right go for it get on and do it and some of it's just it's a liberation of thought we're all perfectly capable of doing it but if you've you know if you spent you know the last 10 years working in an environment where you know every time you ask for a decision you're not going to hear back for a month two months or whatever or ever or that actually your performance Nobody really cares about the hundred thousand pound, you know, issue here. And then you go to an environment which is completely different, whereby the hundred thousand pounds is material. And actually, if you want to recruit somebody, and they're important to the business, then damn well get on and do it. And so you've, you, in a way, you're liberating people from the shackles of a corporate environment. And both environments are right, but they're different. So the big corporate culture was making sure that people understood. That the journey they were going to go on was going to be different to the journey that they've been on and most people actually embrace that type of change but it does require you know it, you can't just force the horse to water to drink you know you, you've got to you've just got to allow it to slowly well not slowly but you know you've got to urge it and push it along a little bit but accept that actually they're coming from a different place and hopefully they'll all embrace it not everybody ever does. I mean, that's you know, some people like the, the steadiness of the, the massive corporate, but it, it's uh, it, it, that is a massive cultural change when you stand back and look at it for a lot right. of people. In addition to the the cultural nuances and components, and that, that's very interesting, by the way. Just just uh, you know what a dramatic shift that must be. I think a lot of times companies, when they think about culture, if they think about culture, they're thinking more incremental changes and things that might be a little bit more measured. Whereas just given the situation here, it was more of a, a 180 in some ways, it sounds like, in, in terms of how that, that culture changed. It's, yeah, I mean, to, to go from a corporate background 
to a you know part of fifteen thousand people to one where you're standalone with only three hundred and fifty people. You know right. that is a dramatic shift in you know in, in in positioning and temperament, whatever. Yeah. So in addition to culture, when you think about PE-owned firms, and I know you've worked for and, and been involved with yeah. transformations at PE-owned firms and then just more corporate non-PE-owned firms, how is it different going through a transformation in general uh, for a company that's got private equity investors and maybe think of things a little bit differently? Well, probably the, the most important thing to take into account is that the time horizon of the average um, PE investment, not all of them, but most of them is five years. So, you know, they come in, um, they really make their impact within the first year, two years, grow the business and then look to exit by year five. So by the end of year four, I mean, their eyes are always on the exit. You know, that, that's what they do. But by the end of year four, they really are focusing in on the exit. So your time horizon within those businesses is, you know, it, it is, shall I say, quite structured. Um, five years and therefore you know what you're going to be doing in the first couple of years and at the end of the fifth, fourth year you know what you're going to be doing so it's really quite a structured approach but it's also it's quite definitive i mean one might argue that actually within the within the within the quoted sector world the time horizons are in a way horrendous because you, you get judged on quarterly results <laughs> so people people might you know have the ability within the within the quoted world to or not the ability within the quoted world to say well actually hell if we don't deliver our results this quarter or the next quarter we're all up for the you know up for the high jump and um god help us all whereas in the the private equity world you could either say it's a short term or it's a long-term play because you say well actually i know that i'm not going to get shot for missing my results for a month or for a quarter or for a half year i will get shot and i will be held to account if i don't deliver but at least I've got an audience who will listen to me. So, you know, they, they have their advantages. The uh, decision-making process, I think, and I touched on this earlier, within private equity is much more agile. You know, you, you're much closer to the board, um, that you're not part of a, of a group, each of whom is competing for capital. You're part of a, you know, of a company that they've invested in, and they've invested in because they've got a vision for it. So the vision, their strategy, and your enablement of that strategy should be perfectly aligned. You're not competing with other divisions within a corporate, and therefore the decision-making process should be much, much quicker. You virtually can ring them up and say, this is what we want to do. You put your case, and you can get a decision. If it's a decision that goes up to the board level, um, you, know, you can get a decision within the week. Um, and so they're much more... I think they've probably also got a slightly more risk culture, provided it sits in with their with their strategy for the business. So it's it's it, it's a it is a fundamentally different dynamic that drives the PE structure. And like, listen, I'm not speaking for all PE houses, uh, so you know it, it, it's I'm just talking you know broadly. That is a very very different um, approach to how they manage the businesses, and it's liberating in some respects but you'll also have your feet held to the fire in others you can, you can get away with it in big corporates you can get away with some performance or whatever they may just focus on your revenue not your bottom line right so, yeah and, and liberating is usually not the word that uh, i associate with with transformation so it's good to hear that uh 
you know, some of your experience has been uh, liberating in that way where you're able to see or affect a change that um, has, has helped, you know, make the companies more nimble or more responsive, whatever the case may be. Well, I'd certainly say that I think there's a lot, there's a lot of cases of people who want to do things, but feel hidebound by the, um, you know, the, the, the slowness, the, 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 the glacial decision making that happens in corporates that, oh, yeah, we need to do this. And, but whereas they understand the importance of it, the people who actually make the decisions don't understand the importance. So they're not part of it. They're not they're not close to it. Whereas the private equity owners will be much, much closer to the company. So I think it's liberating because once people understand and you know realize that actually there's an alignment of interest for their company they're not competing with other divisions they may be competing with other strategies uh that actually it's something which you know that you know you you, you can all point in the same direction a lot uh, and hopefully move forward a lot more quickly yeah absolutely so we with all of your experience with with transformations at, at different companies uh maybe i'll focus just on on Jane's and if you have other examples, uh, those may apply as well. But what would you consider the most important components of a successful transformation? Are there are a few. Are there a handful of things that sort of jump out at you based on your your experience at Jane's as well as with other companies? Yeah, um, th there are. Um, I I've spent a lifetime actually helping companies, many of them which have been distressed. And one of the things which has always hit me is there's a massive relationship between failure and governance um, and it's not a subject which people really like to talk about because it's a bit, bit dull or whatever but i've seen where governance is poor results are poor and whilst that can apply to should i say the whole corporate if i look at a transformation project if you don't get your governance right you're setting yourself up to fail. It is just a mirror image of the larger problem, which I've just discussed, which I've just mentioned, which is if you don't, if you get, if you get poor governance in a company, then you're setting yourself up to fail. If you get poor governance on a transformation project, you're setting yourself up to fail. God's sake, get the governance right so that the reporting and everything about it is correct. Because if it's not, you'll all end up fighting. You'll all blame each other, and the whole thing will go. You know, up in the smoke, and uh, you know, and, and, and you know, the results from that just do not bear thinking about. So get your governance right. Um, preparation, 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 preparation. I, I don't know how many times I can say it. Prepare, 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 prepare. Put it all, invest it all up front. You know, do your preparation, and then everything else should actually flow from that. Um, setting up a program management office really important. Um, and you know, invest properly in that. Don't think you're going to save some costs um, just by not investing in a program management office, because if you don't invest, you're kidding yourself, and you will, yeah, you're, you're regretted. Um, uh, so, well, uh, most people, when they go through a transformation program, have probably never experienced it. Maybe some people, you know, they might, most people might experience once in their life. You know, um, that does not mean that you know what to do at all. So just accept the fact that actually going from A to B, and it's something you've never done before, you might have done once, is something you should probably 
rely you know ask experts to help you with because if you get an expert who's done it 30 times he will go straight to the nub of the problem way before you and you know, just because you're competent in an area doesn't mean that you're capable of getting it right the first time and i'm sure you know the second time you do it you go oh gosh i'm that much further up the curve because i know exactly what to do and the third time you do it you're really a long way up the curve so if you get somebody who's done it 20 25 times trust me he's going to take you from a to b without going around the bloody houses at all um, and knows how everything fits so to me you know you, you, you just don't kid yourself that you've got the experience to do it you know uh, negotiating contracts with like with the, with the likes of oracle and microsoft and you know, aws whatever, you know the chances are yes you may be very good at negotiating contracts but you have no idea what type of terms and conditions they're giving to other people so whilst you may walk away thinking you know oh i think i've got a great deal unless you've actually dealt with lots of contracts of these guys you've got an absolutely asymmetric view on life and therefore you know don't think for yourself don't think for one moment that you actually have the the skill the capacity the capability to know whether you've even driven a good contract and it's a contract that's fair it's not just about money it's about making sure the whole thing works for you uh, i wouldn't i would never profess ever to knowing anything about anything like this i would just simply i think that the job of sunny in my position is to ask the questions not to answer them i, I you know I, I you know i'm not experienced enough to say this is the right thing to do i'm hopefully experienced enough to be able to say i have no idea what is the right thing to do i need some help um, building contingency because you're never it's never going to be as cheap as you think um and it's it's never going to deliver everything you think in the first instance so um manage people's expectations you know just you know don't think that you've got a magic one when you make a decision you know the hardest part of the journey starts not when you've said we're going to transform the hardest part comes when you actually say we're doing it now you know we're actually delivering it making the decision to transform is easy you know actually delivering it is where it's really really important uh last thing is i say last i'm sure we've gone for hours but recruit early um don't think well the system's going to go live in october therefore we'll recruit in september you know it's a that that, that is a real um short-term saving for some it, it, it's not it's not a clever one just recruit early get people and just invest in training people and get them engaged as early as possible because again the cost of a well i touch on this you know the cost of failure of a transformation sit down and ask yourself what is going to happen if i can no longer invoice people what's going to happen to my working capital you know what's going to happen if i can't get my results out to the public if it's a quoted business what's going to happen to the senior management team when I go to the private equity house and say this whole thing has gone wrong, you know, um, there are the costs of fixing are just astronomic. The hidden costs of fixing. Don't try and kid yourselves about the upfront costs. So well, that'll cost you know tens of thousands of dollars to fix. The costs on the staff, the morale, 
the management team, if you get it wrong, are astronomic. So just do everything you can to make sure you get it right. And just don't kid yourselves by saving a nickel and diming here and there, because it, it will bite you in a way which, well, actually, you probably won't know about because you'll be booted out. I suspect. <laughs> yeah, that's, unfortunately, you're right on that. And, and so much of what you're talking about here, you know, kind of, I was jotting down some notes as you were talking. You mentioned governance, preparation, uh, setting up a program management office, um, bringing in the right outside help, negotiations, et cetera. So much of what you've talked about and what you alluded to is the upfront piece of it, the stuff you do before the project really gets started. And what's interesting is that you were under fairly immense, um, time pressure to, to stand this up. And I know a lot of organizations, a lot of clients we work with are under similar types of pressure, maybe for different reasons. You know, maybe there's economic uh, conditions or um, a merger that's happened or whatever the case may be that is causing some sort of uh, urgency. And then you add to that the the whole agile movement and the, the need or the want that organizations have to be more nimble and move faster. So there's a lot of headwinds that would suggest that maybe you don't take that time up front because you're you're spending time up front planning and preparing when you could be doing. And so I think it's very interesting because it's almost counterintuitive, but very smart to say, you know, we're going to take a step back to be able to take two steps forward and to take two steps forward quickly. So I guess the question would be, you know, how much of the time of the year or so that you spent on the transformation, how much of that time just order of magnitude did you spend on that upfront preparation and all those things you talked about? Yeah, I think I think we probably spent more time preparing than we did in the actual um, transforming, so to speak. Um, yeah, no, no, we definitely did. We spent a lot more time preparing, getting the scope of works right, trying to understand um, the, the needs of the business um, fully and absolutely scope everything out. Um, much so, much more so than the you know the data migration. And the should I say the, the, the towards the, you know the, the, the month or so up to the up to going live was well that was it you know it was the going live data translation stage came towards the second half or in well into the second half of the project um, and, and I think that, you know I should say here that the the thing about these projects as well I said I think probably maybe more so on the finance side than on the other side is. It's not until you actually start transforming the data into the way you want to see it and start using it that your red, amber, green start really ranking up, wrapping up. Because you, you can get, if I was to say, you know, the old classic red, amber, green, you know, rag status for a project, don't kid yourself because you've got green, 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 that it's actually really when you get to the final stage of the project that you really begin to stress test it. So don't think because you're green all the way up that you're not going to face your speed bumps, your reds, your ambers um, towards the back end of the project. But I'd like to think you mitigate it by doing lots and lots of preparation up front, getting the scope. You know, the systems integrators you're going to use, they're going to do what you tell them to. Um, and, you know, we, we, we actually had a, a specialist, you know, on the financial side. Uh, we had a, somebody there who just sat as a go-between between the company and the systems integrator. 
to really make sure that the interpretation of the what we wanted was clearly and well defined. Because the systems integrate, you know, if you say, you know, go left, they'll go left. If you say jump, you know, one step forward, they'll jump one step forward. If you actually shouldn't have said go left and you said you should have said go right, it's not their fault. You know? You've got to make sure you give them a really clear instruction. And you won't know that until the very end of the project. So investing up front. So I would probably say, Eric, I'd probably say we spent close to two thirds of the time, should I say, doing the preparation stage before the, the transfer. Some of it runs in parallel, but before the, you know, the transformation ETL stage to use the lingo. Um, yeah, so just, you know, if you prepare it properly, and you direct them properly, then you've got a hopefully a half decent chance of getting it right. Right. Well, that's fascinating because it, it's rare that you hear that, that someone, especially at, at your level, at a CFO level, at the C level, that recognizes that you're actually moving faster by taking that time up front to plan. I think the instinct is to just go, go, go. Let's not worry about planning. Let's go because we've only got 12 months or whatever our timeline is. So I think that's very intuitive and rare to hear that. So that's, that's refreshing. If you had to summarize, uh, you know, for, for those of our audience members that are on a transformation or about to start a transformation of some sort, whether it's a digital transformation or business transformation or reorg, whatever it may be, what, uh, how would you summarize just the closing words of advice you'd, you'd provide to them? Um, okay, a uh, couple of thoughts on that one. Um, consider the cost of failure up front. Um, the gentleman, the board level, you should consider what will happen if it goes wrong. Because uh, it, it's it's easy to say, oh, that's just the back office. Let's let them get on with it. Uh, but just understand just what the costs are. Um, uh, you know, and the costs are huge. I'm not, no, no, I'm not just talking about financial costs, if it goes wrong. Uh, you need to manage the expectations of the board. I say you, I don't mean that in some sort of um, Preferred sense. I mean, you know, one needs to manage the, the the expectations of the board and the company. You know, this is not a magic wand. You're not going to suddenly find yourself way better off for doing it. It, it will take time. It's not something you don't go. You, you know, you, you don't climb Everest in a day. It takes you a long time to actually see the benefits of it. So just manage the expect expectations of the board. You're not going to solve all your problems with one fell swoop it will take a long time to bed in. And just because you've gone live doesn't mean to say your project's over. It's not. You're probably just starting, you know, getting the benefits of it is not something, it's not turning a switch on and off. All right. It, it, it will take more time. It's going to cost you more than you want. And it's going to deliver less than you want in the short term. In the long term, I'm absolutely able to deliver everything. Well, hopefully. Uh, but it'll, you know, manage the as again manage the expectations you've got to have champions running throughout the company because you could easily get the board or somebody on the board saying right this is what we've got to do you you must have the champion on a board but you need that vein running through the company because if the champion at the top is not supported by the operations team by the, you know the back office team who just say yeah this is the thing to do then they're not even going to see it because they're getting their monthly board report they're not even going to see the resistance that you get on the ground so you want to get the 
literally running the whole way down. And, you know, to me, some of the most important people in the company are those at the junior end. They're the ones who deal with the actual, you know, should I say the, the workings of these ERP systems day in, day out. Listen to them. Listen to them for God's sake. You know, they're, they're the ones who are sitting there pushing the buttons and having to manage Workday or Salesforce or, you know, Concur or, you know, or SAP or NetSuite. They're the ones who are doing it. So listen to what they do. Don't think that just because, you know, you've been there and done it and done it and you're, you know, 30 years in the business, you know all the answers. No, no, you, we, we don't. It's, you know, systems are changing so rapidly and so often. There is no way we can keep up with it. So communicate and listen all the way down the organization. Um, and two thing, final things was get independent advice. You know, this is a holistic exercise. There is no way that any individual is going to understand how all the component parts, sorry, within a company, of how all the component parts, how these ERP systems all mix together, how Salesforce works with NetSuite, but it doesn't work with Dynamics or as well, or what's going to be required is nowhere. You need independent advice because you're not going to, unless you've been doing this for as long as you guys have, it's not going to work that you're going to know the answers. Because what was yesterday's solution or, you know, the, the solution two years ago will have moved on. What were the terms of a contract that Microsoft were offering you or offering people two years ago? Now it's more cloud. -based. It's not. It's going to be different. What you can get, how you knit different countries together, what all those component parts are. It's don't even think that you know the answers. You don't. So for God's sake, get independent advice, because if you get it wrong, it's going to cost you your company, your livelihood, and your job. And the very last thing I would say, and I, I, I will admit, I've nicked this from somewhere. I just, I read this recently and I thought this was brilliant. It says, be wary of the loud mouth with a strong opinion masquerading as the expert versus the quiet guy who spent his life researching an area. And I think that's great words um, because we all know we, we, all, we all know who those people are and um, it's easy to be bowled over by them, but just take caution is what I would say. Right. Well, that's, that's great advice. I, I appreciate you, you sharing those, those insights and, uh, uh, you know, obviously me being biased, I think, you know, one of the best decisions you made was to hire that independent outside help from our, our team at third stage, but that that's me being biased, obviously there. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was brilliant. I mean, and, I mean, and in the schemes of the whole project, it was, you know, to be fair, it was, it, 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 relatively, it was a tiny part of the cost of the whole project. But if you set off on the wrong course, um, at least I felt that we were setting off on the right course. And um, it, that was absolutely, you know, it was, it was money well worth spending um, because it would be so easy to get these things wrong. Um, so, I, I always would countenance people to go to people who've had experience doing these things. Most people will never do this, or maybe once in their life. Yep, yep. And there's a lot of lot of uh, battle wounds and lessons to be learned after multiple yeah. times through it. Well, James, thank you very much for being here today. I really appreciate your time and uh, appreciate being uh, on the show here today. I, I assume I know you're on LinkedIn, so people connect with you on on LinkedIn. Uh, any any other ways that they can get a hold of you or learn more about you? Or is LinkedIn the best way? 
uh, LinkedIn is the best way because I'm just trying to rebuild our website. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> LinkedIn, LinkedIn is the best way. Perfect. All right, James. Well, thank you very much. Uh, hope you have a great rest of your day and appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Eric. Appreciate that. Are you ready for transformation in 2021? Are you ready for change? Well, we want to help ensure that you're ready at Digital Stratosphere on April 20 through April 22nd. Digital Stratosphere is the only technology agnostic event of its kind, and we're bringing it to you digitally. This unique event is intended for anyone about to go through any sort of transformation, whether it be a digital transformation or a business transformation. This event is going to cover topics from experts ranging from strategy, to planning, to program management, to change management, to technology, everything you need to know to make your transformation successful in 2021 and beyond. And if you're one of the over 1,000 people that attended one of our past Digital Stratosphere events, this one promises to be bigger, better, and even more stratospheric. And the best part is that because this event coincides with Third Stage's three-year anniversary, we're providing the first day of keynote sessions to you with no registration fee. And if you would like to attend all three days of the conference, we've provided deep discounts to celebrate our three-year anniversary. So bring your entire team to Digital Stratosphere and get ready for transformation. Back to Transformation Ground Control. This is the best of slash greatest hits episode for season one. This is our curated version of all the highlights and the best interviews or some of the best interviews we've had on the show so far in the first 12 episodes. And what I want to do now is so far the discussion has centered on clients and people that work at the client organizations, getting their perspective on what went well, what didn't go well. And those case studies also centered on start to finish sort of soup to nuts uh, situations where we and the, the team here were involved from the very start until the finish of the project. But for this fourth interview, I want to shift gears a little bit and bring on someone who's not a client, but he works with our clients and his name is Dave Beldick. He's a senior manager and he leads uh, many of our client engagements. And one of the client engagements that he led that I want to unpack and revisit his interview for was a project recovery. So it was a transformation project that had gone off track in ERP implementation, SAP in particular, SAP S4HANA. Project didn't go well, system integrator didn't do their job, internal project manager at the client organization wasn't doing their job very well either. Um, got in over their heads, project got off track, and they hired us to come in and help fix it and help clean it up. So I want to get his perspective because he's got two different unique perspectives. One is he's an outside consultant, just like I am. So he has that outside perspective and he kind of relates in the interview, he relates it to other uh, experiences he has. And he used to be on the client side of things. And now he's, he's a consultant uh, helping clients through similar journeys. And the other reason why it's unique and his, his perspective is unique is because he's coming in after damage has already been done. 
And so he's got some interesting perspectives on things that we can take away to make sure we don't do early in the project. And if we're in the midst of a project and we're starting to see some of these same warning signs, it's a way to understand what either can be done to mitigate those risks before they get out of control, or if you're already at a point where some of the risks have repeated themselves or you're seeing some similar risks as what Dave talks about, you at least hopefully can get some insights as to what to do to maybe correct or remediate some of those those challenges and problems that you may be facing. So regardless of where you are in the transformation journey, there are some really good lessons here. And uh, Dave has a really good way of taking very complex concepts and simplifying it and explaining it in a way that the average layperson can understand, including myself. And so it's a it's a great conversation. I enjoyed this one in particular uh, because he has that unique perspective. So uh, Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. Great to be here. So we have this client that you and I have, have worked with here in recent months, and they had gone down the path of trying to implement SAP. They get to a certain point where they felt like the project was off track and they ran into a number of challenges. Long story short, they call us and say, hey, can you come help fix this and help us get this project back on track? So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions around how it got off track and what some of the lessons were and uh, what what ultimately we did to recommend to help them get back on track. But before I do that, maybe just give us a quick overview of the organization and, and a little bit of understanding of the size and scope and complexity of the organization. We can't mention them by name because of client confidentiality, but maybe just give us a little bit of background about the client in general. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're a major distributor of specialty chemicals and, and what I'll call related supplies. Um, they basically, they're about a billion dollar business and, and they've got over 40 sites, most of them in, uh, in the US and Canada. Um, they, they have over 40,000 SKUs that they sell. Uh, so it's quite a mix. They've got quite a quite a variety of products they do. I mean, they have bottles and cans and drums and boxes and roll goods and sheets and you know. So it's quite a quite a broad broad mix of things. But uh, they 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 basically they they get supplied by over like like 600 or so manufacturers. So their 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 whole thing is they're kind of the one stop shop for their customers. So they don't have to go to 600 folks. They go to one stop, and they supply them. So so. Uh, being really good at the logistics and the warehousing part is really, really their key thing is being able to do that really well. So the high volume distribution model with cost efficiency and, and minimizing cost, that's sort of their, their model, right? Absolutely. And, and they do, they do everything from supplying the mom and pop guys to some of the, the big names out there. So it, it's all over the board in terms of size of orders and frequency and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned one thing already that is sort of a, I wouldn't say it's a red flag, but something that, you know, as consultants, we would kind of want to hone in on right away, which is that, you know, they make chemicals and they, anytime you have a process manufacturer or a, a, a product like that, that's, that's process-based where it's, it's not a discrete widget that you're just putting two things together and you end up with one, this you're talking about converting units of measure and getting ingredients that you then have to convert into barrels and gallons and different things like that. And that takes exactly, exactly. That's right. So it's not just, it's not just kilograms versus pounds. You got the whole gallons versus liters versus pounds versus sometimes square feet and square meters, you know, all that stuff gone. That's true. Yeah. So we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more because okay. that technically or typically creates a lot of challenge for, for these sorts of implementations, as you well know, with your background, but before we get to that, um, what were when they first reach out to us? You know, they're already midstream in the project. They had already 
selected SAP. They knew they were going down this path. They, they got to a certain point and felt enough pain that they felt the need to, to make some changes and to ultimately reach out to us and have us come in and assess and help give some recommendations of how to get the project back on track. What were some of the early signs that they had when we first engaged with them that they knew that things were off track? Yeah. Well, really, the very the very first sign that things were in trouble were, were something we didn't hear a whole lot about because uh, they had some internal issues, I would say, between some of their leadership and the system integrator. And ultimately, they ended up kicking out the system integrator. And and so and then it was a few few months later that that one of the members of leadership actually left, too. So we'll never know that whole story. Um, obviously there was trouble in paradise. So that was kind of a red flag to begin with, but when it really became obvious to everybody that there was trouble was kind of after the first go live, um, they had gone through were things they were trying to implement that seemed to test out pretty well in the classroom setting, but when they took it to real life, it didn't work so well, had a lot of troubles with that. And, and so that, that was one of the problems. It, it took much longer to stabilize than they thought. And they had a total of, they're gonna do like five rollouts. So, you know, you know how these things go, you gotta move on to the next one while one stabilizing. And when they tried to do that, their whole concept was they, they had a, the idea, the notion of doing a, a global build. Uh, so they didn't expect a lot of build activities between the first and second rollout. But as it turned out, uh, they had a few missed requirements. So they had much more build activities than they thought. So that, that kind of caused two kind of things. One, it, it threw a kink in their schedule from the from a build standpoint. But then you got these poor guys that are trying to stabilize the first rollout while, while folks are changing the system and, mm -hmm. and you know in the in the middle after they're doing that. So they ended up having to do a lot of regression testing that they had not planned for. So it really that was really when they really raised their hand and say we're in trouble and we need another we need another set of eyes on this thing to make sure we're not driving this thing right in the ditch. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, they, they actually caught the problem sooner than a lot of clients we, were, we work with. A lot of clients get a lot further along before they finally realize, wow, we're, we're really in trouble here and we need some help. So they, they at least caught it relatively early. I mean, you never want to see anyone have to go down that path, but at least they, they caught it semi-early. Um, what, what are some examples of, I'm intrigued by the comment you made early in, in your response there about uh, how the stuff in the classroom didn't convert mm. to, to reality or production. What are some examples and, and what are, what do you think caused that? I mean, was it? The yeah. Yeah. This is uh, actually, th this is a good example because it's, it's a classic one that we see again and again. Uh, they were trying to implement, well, let's, let me back up a minute. Most of the time in their legacy system, they were used to using FIFO first in first out. And I say most of the time because because they did what I would what I call quasi FIFO, and which basically means they did it when it was convenient. Hmm. But now they wanted to take that extra step and kind of hard code it, so to speak, hardwired into the system, make the ERP system force them to do to do FIFO first in first out. Well, when it's when it's sort of loosey goosey kind of semi quasi FIFO, when you when you get to that point where you've got where the system's telling you, you know, pick this drum that's uh, way in the back, way in the bottom, and you got to move eight things out of the way. When it's a quasi FIFO, you sort of can, you know, hand wave and say, well, we'll just pick another one, we'll replace that. So, you know, you might have had to pick 10 pallets and nine of them are, are meet the FIFO requirement, but the last one didn't. 
But when, as soon as you say, I'm going to go, I'm going to force it from my ERP system, then guess what? You can't wave your hand anymore. You got to go get that drunk. You got to get that one and you got to move those eight things and get them out of the way. And if you have that happen on, on every order or every other order, suddenly your smooth, efficient operations just, just grind to a halt. And they, they underestimated that. They did not anticipate that. They, the functionality uh, worked as, as, as planned. I mean, it, 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 it said, this is the oldest one, go get it. They just didn't realize what go get it meant. Uh, so that was one problem. The other problem, which is related to that, is uh, they're working in, in these little handheld devices. So if you've seen those, they've got little tiny screens. You don't have a lot of real estate in those screens. So when it, in the old days, when it said, go pick, you know, go pick 40, 40 batches, 40 pallets of material XYZ, you didn't need a lot of real estate. You just start finding material XYZ and scanning. But when it says, no, go pick these 40 pallets, now suddenly, You've got to go scanning through all these screens. And, they, and what used to take them one, two, or three screens to get through, now they were flipping through 20, 30, 40 screens to, to get through that. So they ended up actually having to kind of rework that whole, that whole uh, design of how they, how they did their handhelds. So these are all things that, that um, you know, that in a classroom, it looks great. But when you get out in the real world, they didn't, they didn't mimic the real world very well when they did their testing and they found out, unfortunately, they found at go live that um, this was not going to work out so well. And that's obviously a bad time to find out that it's not going so well. Yeah. Yeah. And just to, you know, maybe jump ahead to, to kind of solutions or lessons from those couple examples you gave, particularly the, you know, the classroom setting, not reflecting reality what you know if you, if you could you know having watched the game film you, you kind of saw what they did and how it ended up you go back in time what what would you have done different i mean would you have suggested just more robust scenarios that they test or what, what are your thoughts on how you think yeah that? exactly exactly I, I think you know what, what what i always like to see is that that real real well-defined scenarios that the kind of real day in the life what's it really going to be like involve the people that really do it if you can do it in the area that's really going to take place, anytime you have to put your hands on product and, and materials and move them around and that sort of thing, it's good to be out where all that happens. You know, if you're taking an order and you're and you're doing business planning type activities, you can kind of do that remotely. That's not the same as you know when you're on the shop floor and there's physical, real world implications that you need to take into account. So I always like to you know do the scenarios for real. If you if you have to pick a hundred item order. Pick a hundred item order, test it, see what that's really like. Don't just don't just say we pick one or two. It's it's not uh, it's not you know rinse and repeat a hundred times. That that doesn't get it. You got to really see what it takes to do that. So uh, I definitely I, I definitely say you know you try to do that kind of thing. The yeah. other thing that that um, when you think about it too holistically like that, you realize that you know these picking strategies. It's not it's not just about the picking strategy anymore the way I put it away has a big impact on my ability to go pick it. So now you got to think through the put away strategies and, and that, that starts to, then the pieces start to all come together. So when you really, you really, when you do your testing, make sure you do the end to end testing, you know, from the, from the time you receive it to the vendor to put it away. And then you go back and retrieve it to make sure that you've kind of got the whole end to end things. Cause if you look at, things in isolation, sometimes it looks okay, 
feels okay, but when you put it all together, hmm, sometimes not so much. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good point, and and it raises another question. You know, while we're going down this this uh, thread, is what in the in the um, the testing that was done, or in the in the I'm sorry, in the classroom training mm-hmm. and the, the testing that was done up front, what you know, were the right people involved? In other words, was were there people that were sort of working on the front lines that you would have expected would have picked up on these nuances or these disconnects between what they were seeing in the classroom versus what the way things would actually work? Or did they not involve the right people? Or what do you think the the reason why some of that wasn't captured or caught earlier? Yeah, I think they involved a lot of the, the folks that were kind of managing the area. Um, and not necessarily the guys with the actually running around picking the stuff. Um, they're too busy out there picking, right? So they, they had some other people doing the testing and uh, they, val- they verified that the functionality worked, but they had that disconnect between the physical world and, and the system world. And they, they just didn't, they didn't know, they didn't realize. And like, like I said, they had, they had always thought that we do, you know, we do, almost FIFO, almost all the time, but there's a big gap between almost all the time and 100% of the time. And they just didn't realize how big, how big a leap it was. And, and, and so, yeah, they didn't involve all the right people, uh, nor did they bring the physical world into play. I think that's one of the things that, that uh, and it's common, most people don't do this in the physical world. You know, the testing, a lot of it is classroom. But if, like I said, when you actually have to put your hands on product and move it and touch it and feel it, where that label is physically and can you get to it and read it and scan it, that that matters. And and so unless you've got p- folks that really know it inside and out, sometimes it's best to say, we're gonna do this testing in the warehouse. We're gonna go out there. We're gonna scan, scan, scan. We're gonna put our hands on it. We're gonna put it on a, you know, put it on a fork truck and move it around. Um, and, 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 you know, when you, when you start doing that, that's when, that's when you find, uh oh, <laughs> we might have, we might have to refigure, reconfigure our warehouse a little bit. And when I say reconfigure, I mean, in a physical way, not, not, uh, not in a system way, but, you know, the things that used to put, you know, when you start stack things up, suddenly you realize maybe I should do this differently. Maybe I shouldn't be stacking these things up because it creates a pain in the butt for me when I have to go back and get them. So, helping to get that physical real world, however you do it, that, that's what you, you kind of got to get that notion in there as best you can. Yeah. Yeah. Getting the right people in the right real world scenarios uh, laid out. It sounds like that's something that was missing there. Yeah. So you, you've already touched on this a little bit, but I'll ask it anyway to see if we've missed anything so far. But when we think about some of the biggest challenges that this client was facing and some of the, the biggest pains they were facing as they we're going through the uh, transformation before we got involved. What were the biggest challenges beyond what we've already talked about? Were there other things that that uh, they really s- were struggling with along the way? Well, you, you did mention the one thing early on was some of the unit of measure stuff. Um, that is that is uh, challenged for a, a lot of people, uh, especially with that in the SAP world. We all know SAP is very rigid in some things that they do. A unit of measure is certainly one of the things where there are challenges and and. Uh, um, they have a lot of variable weight product and the way they were trying to deal with that, it caused a lot of, a lot of issues because if you wanted to go pick five drums, but they were all different weights, um, you know, you, you couldn't really pick them by the drum. You had to kind of pick it by the weight. And if you didn't, and so that it created a whole number of issues that, that, uh, 
they really didn't have in their legacy system. So, so, um, and the way they define their badges and all that stuff comes into play and in, in what kind of options you have and how you can define your units of measure. And, and so they made some decisions early on without understanding the implications of what that would mean, what that, what doors it would close and what doors it would open. And when they, when they did that, um, they, they found themselves having to do some custom stuff to, to get around some of the early decisions we made. What we ultimately ended up doing was kind of walking them through, you know, we started like from blank sheet of paper and talked through uh, some of the, some of the strategies that you could do to, to deal with these issues and, and really solve them at a root, at a, at a you know, a root cause level. Um, but the, uh, uh, ultimately they, they ended up deciding that, um, you know, for, to do, to do it right, if they were going to do it from the very beginning, they would have defined their badges at a different level. And that would have, that would have allowed them to, to use, not to get too deep into details, but bad specific units of measure and which would allow them to, to pick, you know, exactly a drum, even if it's different ways, all those things could have worked, but the way they defined their batches were the way was they at the level that the vendor defined the batch, which was, you know, 40 drums is one batch. And, and so when you're trying to pick, um, when you're trying to pick from there, now you can't, you, you don't, you can't use the full functionality that SAP has. So long story short, probably too late for that. Um, what they had to do was some, some custom activities to deal with that. They wish they had done the other thing, but it was too much to undo to get there now. So, you know, it would have been a good if we could have had them from the very beginning and had that conversation day one, uh, would have saved a lot, of, a lot of time and pain, but at least they understood what was going on and now they can make a good decision. They, they knew they were, they were between a rock and a hard place. And now it was either unravel what they do, what they had done, or do this custom work to, to, to work around it. And they decided to do the custom work to work around it. And, and for where they were in, at the time, that was the right decision. If they'd been talking about it eight months ago, it would have been a different, a different thing, I think. Right, yeah, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's always nice to have the benefit of, of hindsight, but there's a lot of lessons here I think that others could take away and maybe apply earlier in the process to not necessarily have to uh, make the mistakes themselves. Yeah. Well, we're going to uh, take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to shift gears a little bit and, and go the direction you're starting to go, which is more the kind of the solutions. What are the answers to these problems? And uh, what are the recommendations we ultimately made? And what are some of the lessons we can take away from this uh, for other organizations that might be struggling with the same thing or, you know, might be on the a verge of heading down a, a similar path as this client? So we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. We're here with Dave Beldick talking about a SAP transformation gone wrong and what we did to help correct it. We'll be right back after a quick break. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. 
Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Dave Beldick uh, talking about a SAP transformation case study and more specifically a, a troubled SAP implementation case study. And before the break, Dave, we were talking about um, some of the, the challenges that the, this company and this client faced, um, some of the nuances of the mistakes they made and some of the, the areas they stumbled and some of the, the pitfalls they, they ran into. But shifting gears a little bit and, and looking to, you know, what what could they have, what, what could they do given where they were at that point in the process? Mm-hmm. What, what were some of those recommendations we made? What was some of that low hanging fruit as far as the, you know, the, the handful of things that we recommended to them that would have the biggest impact on, on their transformation? What were some of those things that we, we recommended in the process? Yeah. Well, right when we came in, as I mentioned, they were kind of in between go lives and they were getting ready for the next go live. And, and so we really, at that point, we really, you know, we kind of looked at it and said, okay, you've been burned. You, you kind of know what things are happening here. You kind of know how the functionality works and how, how you know, how it has to kind of connect with the physical world to, to make it all work. So you make, make sure that you, you, you learn from that experience and, and make sure you do testing of real life scenarios, um, you know, full detailed real life scenarios. Um, take a look at your current warehouses that you're getting ready to go live in and, and make sure that you've got the right people involved doing the testing. Even take a look at how you, where your inventory is situated because when you're right now, like if you were to flip the switch to go live today, um, you know, if you, if you knew you had, you had some of the oldest materials tucked way in the back, way underneath a whole bunch of stuff, you know, you know those are going to be problematic, especially if those are high volume materials that you know you know you're going to be using the very first week, you got to you're going to have to go get those things. Uh, you could actually think ahead and and do a little bit of rearranging of that stuff to to basically unpile some of those things now, so that you're not you're not facing that at go live. So they're a little bit smarter. They they knew what was coming, um, but it was about making sure that they do they did a lot more realistic testing and with the right people. And then looking at it compared to their real inventory and where it was configured. And I think they even made a few changes in the warehouse to, you know, you know, put things in different aisles or different places to make it a little bit more accessible. I think that's, you know, thinking ahead like that is, is one of the good, one of the big recommendations we did early on. Yeah. And they, you know, they had, it's always a little bit easier as a consultant when you have a client who has made some mistakes on their own and they kind of know what not to do. And a lot of times it's one thing to tell a client, hey, don't go stub your toe. But once they've stubbed their toe, then they, they feel the pain and they, they understand more fully. You know, yeah, you then, they don't, don't do that again. That's right. <laughs> right. It's like, a, like uh, you know, kids with a hot stove, don't touch the oven, don't touch the oven. And then they touch the oven and then they know not to touch the oven. <laughs> you know, That's right. But, uh, you know, one, one question I have, you know, a nuance in this is, you know, not every organization that goes through this necessarily has, you know, multiple locations or, multiple phases to where they could take those lessons from, you know, phase one or go live number one and apply it to the next go live. What, what about this situation where either we, you know, company doesn't have that luxury for whatever reason, or um, they're already in the thick of it. They've already gone live and realized, oops, you know, we didn't test this stuff. You know, the classroom stuff isn't translating into the operational real world. 
What do you do in those cases? Or what did these guys do? Did they just kind of power through and say, we're going to make this work? Or did they back up and say, let's rethink or redo what we just went live with? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, in, in their case, it was a little bit of both. Um, they, they knew it was always an option to not force FIFO by the ERP system. They, they didn't have to do that. They wanted to do that. And they decided that, no, we're, we're committed to that. We're going to make that happen. We're going to, we're going to work through this and, 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 and stick with that decision. They, they could have backed off of that. Um, and that's still a card they can play if they really run into big trouble in the future. But I think they're pretty committed to that. So I give them credit for that. They, they, they knew it. They now understood exactly what that meant. And they were ready to deal with it. Uh, on the other hand, we talked about some of the scanning stuff. That's where they, they said, you know what, this is not going to work. And we're going to have to, we're going to have to make some technical changes. And, and I mentioned before with some of the unit of measure stuff, they had to make some, some technical things, some custom activities to, you know, some custom design to be able to deal with that sort of thing. So, like I said, it was a little bit of both kind of mixed bag, but, but that, that's kind of how they dealt with it. Gotcha. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, it's interesting to see how, different companies respond to those sorts of challenges. Some will just say, well, I guess we're just going to live with it and live in the suboptimal world that we've imposed on ourselves. But in this case, being a high volume distribution company where throughput is so important, they didn't, you know, that really wasn't a good option for them. It doesn't sound like. No, right. They were, now they, they had, they had delayed their project to kind of put it on hold and they were kind of looking at, you know, what, you know, when should we go live next? And, and, what should the overall schedule look like? So we we were dealing with the immediate go live right in front of them, which they still wanted to proceed with. But then we also took a look at uh, what remained, the you know the remaining rollouts, and did it make sense? How they had laid those out, and, and did they have enough time between? Um, and they kind of did. They had a little bit of um, you know they had a process that they were trying to do where they rolled out at a at a consistent you know uh, basically a a five month cycle, you know, kind of thing where they, where they had a, a you know, a repeatable cycle for rollout, which, which is a good thing. Uh, Cause people understand what's coming, but they, what they struggled with a little bit was first of all, the rollouts that they had laid out, they, it's like they had five regions defined. So they, they said, we'll do five rollouts. Well, when you started looking at the size of each of those things, it really didn't make sense to do that. Cause some of the rollouts, quite frankly, were too small. And some were huge, and and so they weren't to use the same kind of rollout schedule for each of them. Just didn't make sense. It it it, it really uh, ended up. I think it caused a lot more. Um, in in a desire to have something repeatable, they kind of forgot to take into account the scope of what they were doing, and and so it really made more sense to group things. They we actually came up with a with a plan that instead of doing five rollouts, let's do four rollouts give us a little bit more time between the rollouts, the two in particular, and then the, then the size of the rollouts tended to match a little bit more, uh, more likely, and then it made more sense, and it seemed to work better, and at the end of the day, it got them done, the overall project at the same time, but it, that would reduce a little bit of risk, so it's always a balancing act between, between how many rollouts do you do, and, and, and uh, you know, you can slice it up and, and do 20 rollouts. Well, nobody wants to do that. Or I can do one big bang. Well, that's a little dicey too. So somewhere in between and kind of kind of navigating those orders a little bit, figuring out what the sweet spot is. Uh, we kind of helped them with that a little bit. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a good reminder that there's, 
you know, no easy answer to any of these decisions. You know, I, even even the recommendations we made to this client, I suspect there are some still some significant risks that needed to be dealt with. You know, with that recommendation. You know, if there's yeah. if there is an easy answer or an easy button or a silver bullet, I think we'd have a lot more successes in the industry than than we have right now. Yeah, it's all it's all trade offs, sir. Yep. Now, what about someone who's about to start a project like this, you know, backing up a little bit and they haven't stubbed their toe yet? Um, what, what are some of the recommendations that you would make to a similar type of organization that's about to implement SAP or any any other sort of enterprise technology for that matter? What, what would you yeah, tell? yeah. Well, certainly, I think I think it is important to pick a system integrator that you do have a good cultural fit with. Uh, I'm not saying that's at the top of the list of, of, of your priorities, but it's it's pretty darn important. You're gonna you're gonna partner with with the system integrator for months, if not years. Uh, so it's very important that you get along together. And so that that goes, you know, that that's absolutely uh, critical. Um, the other thing I think in this case, if you're gonna do a global build, and and uh, by the way, I do like that idea. I do like the notion of doing a global build because it kind of helps you know upfront what you're dealing with, you know. So if you're going to do a global build, do a global build, which means gather global requirements, which means engaging people globally early on in the project to make sure you, you've got their input early on. Now, it's okay to say, um, you know, you gather requirements and you identify some build activity that you're going to do, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to delay that for six months and do it later. That's fine. There's no, no problem with that. The problem is, if you get you know six months down the road, getting ready to go go live and do your next thing, and now you have an un you know a, a requirement that you hadn't identified, and suddenly it is a big requirement. It takes a big build. Now you've thrown your schedule into into a mess, and and you know you start getting into uh, I got to cut short on the documentation, or I got to cut short on the on the on the testing, and and you get in trouble there. So, yeah. I, you know, if you're going to do a global build, then, then take it to heart and, and do it the right way. Right. And, uh, and then, you know, the final thing, and I'll say this to anyone who's doing any kind of implementation, do as realistic scenarios as you can when you're, when you're doing the testing. Mm -hmm. Far better to find out, you know, that you've got a problem in the testing phase than at go live. So, so test it. I mean, really, really strain it. Really try to break it. Try to break it. And, and that's, that's kind of the best advice I can give. Yeah, yeah, and think through those exceptions. They may not seem like a huge deal, or it may not be a majority of your processes or your your normal circumstances. But those are the things, like you mentioned early on, the, those are the things that can throw a monkey wrench into your entire operations. Even if it's a small thing, or even if it's an exception, that can that can build up and create a lot of problems. Yeah, yeah. I think the thing that really caught them by surprise is they felt like they were already doing this FIFO. Most of the way, they just didn't realize how big a leap it was from most of the way to all of the way. It's, it's a, it was a big thing. Yeah, yeah. Now, what about an organization who may already be in the middle of their journey and they're experiencing some sort of challenges, maybe at this magnitude that this client faced, or maybe even greater? Um, what, what are some of the, what would you recommend to that that sort of organization or someone in that situation? Well, I think the one thing that they did do good, I, I'll give them credit for, is you know calling a bit of a timeout and, and having somebody somebody with an independent view of this to take a look at it and say, are we in trouble or aren't we? And if we are, what do we do? You know, what, what are our options? Uh, I think that was that was an important thing to do. And I think getting a lot of what we talked about, they sort of knew. They just needed to hear it. They they needed to know 
that that what they were doing was the right thing. They had they had some pretty good plans. I think they realized they let it get a little bit out of control, and um, and and so so even though they had some things they wanted to do, I'd say probably eighty percent of what they wanted to do we felt was the right thing. Uh, we gave a few things, a few suggestions that would be helpful, uh, and I think that's you know that was that was kind of you know helpful for them. But um, yeah. I think I think that when you get into a situation like that, uh, having that the ability to do that and, and call that timeout is important. They could have called a longer timeout. We could have unraveled some of that design and and going back to basics and and probably dealt with some things. I think that's one of those things where it it gets it gets tough because you've committed a lot of time and money to get to a certain point, and when you finally realize, you know. It's like you said, the 2020 hindsight. Um, at, at some point, you get to a point where there is no return, and and, and you either plow forward uh, with what you got, maybe make a few tweaks, or you or you just say, you know what, we're we're stopping, and we're we're not doing it. We're not going further until we figure out how we're going to land this thing, because there is no sense moving forward with something you don't think you can land, and and. Uh, um, I mean, you've said it many times. I mean, the, the amount of time and effort and money that's spent trying to to, to land the failed implementation, it, it, it can, it, I mean, it can devastate a company. So you can't let yourself go there. So it's it, far better to, to to cause a pause and, and, and figure it out than to keep plowing forward. I think that's that's a key thing. Yeah, that's, that's great advice, especially because, you know, it's, it's always fascinating to me how many organizations are afraid to do that. You know, they feel like, well... I've got a big system integrator here telling me that everything's fine and that it's going to be too disruptive if we pause their resources or they might have to, they might have to switch their resources or go staff them somewhere else. And therefore we shouldn't do it. When you look at some of the dollars being spent on not just system integrators, but other, just the, the burn rate of the project in general, you want to, you want to dial it in and, and get it right. You know, and if it means yeah. calling a timeout or calling an audible or changing course, then, you know, it's your project, go ahead and do it. I think that's, it's, it's fascinating to me how companies are so afraid to manage more carefully how they spend their time and money and focus on these projects, just because someone else is telling them, don't worry about it. Right. Right. It's true. Yeah. So good advice, taking, take control of your project and call the time out, bring in help if you need it. And I, I think that's good, good closing advice. Well, th well, thanks for being here, Dave. Really appreciate the, the discussion and the time and the, the lessons learned. This was really, really interesting. Okay, great. Great. Good talking to you, Eric. All right. Good chatting with you, too. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more on Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Okay, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. This is the best of episode, greatest hits of season one, the best interviews, the things that we think are the highlights 
of the season so far. And, and just to give you a little bit of a spoiler alert, this is volume one. We're going to have a volume two next week of some of the other highlights that didn't make it onto this show, but are worth noting and worth highlighting. So we're going to pull out some of the additional uh, highlights in addition to these four interviews that we talked about today and replayed for you here today. We're going to pick four more that we thought were highlights that were worth noting for next week. So be sure to tune in next week uh, for the episode um, and subscribe to us if you haven't already on YouTube and or your audio podcast platform of choice, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, whatever the case may be. There's hundreds of podcast platforms on there, out there, and we are on most of them from what I can tell. And uh, also want to encourage you to register for our digital stratosphere event. If you've been watching this entire episode, you've probably seen a couple promos for the, the show or for the event. Uh, it's a free event. You can register for the day one of keynotes at no charge. If you decide to take part in the other two days of the event, the breakout sessions and the workshops, the more hands-on detailed discussions, uh, I encourage you to register for that as well. We have some some steep discounts based on third stage's three-year anniversary happening at the same time as this digital stratosphere event. So it's perfect if you're looking for digital transformation, best practices, and um understanding of change management, project management, how to handle process improvement, how to find the right technology, um, how to manage your system architecture, how to optimize the business benefits and the business value of your investments, how to put together the team, all that sort of stuff we're going to we're going to dive into in that 3-day session. Day 1, like I said, the keynotes are free. I'll be speaking on day 1, and then days 2 and 3 there's a there's a small registration fee. I'll be speaking and doing workshops on those two days as well along with other uh, team members from third stage. We have clients joining us uh, and providing some some content as well as industry peers as well. So I encourage you to check that out. And that's uh, co-sponsored by Taft Law, uh, who's a partner of ours and uh, a firm we work very closely with uh, in any sort of contract dispute or legal issue. They're, they're a law firm that specializes in that. And uh, they've co-sponsored the event with third stage. So I encourage you to register for that. You can learn more. You can see the agenda. You can register at stratosphere2021.com. And if you're not sure if you want to pay for the other two days, go ahead and register for day one. And you can always, if you like what you see in day day one, you can register uh, at the end of that first day, you can register for the next uh, two days of sessions. So uh, that being said, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Greatest Hits. Uh, join us next week for more, uh, I guess I'd call it volume two of, of The Greatest Hits of season one. And uh, we'll, we'll dive into some additional uh, highlights from the season so far. So thank you very much for joining. Hope you have a great day, and we will see you on the next episode of Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling, and we'll see you next time.